Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have Dr. Sanjay Merchant joining us from Illinois, Chicago, right? That's right. Do you live in the city of Chicago? I live in the west suburbs. Okay. What's that mean? What, what's it called? Is that where? Uh, the, town, the town I live in is called Roselle, west suburbs, or like any suburbs in America, I suppose, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, tangentially related to the city, and I go downtown to the city uh, for, for school every day. Cool. I'm uh, in frozen California, freezing my butt off. Oh, my gosh. It's freezing out there. I had to put a sweater on today. I, I didn't know cold until I came to Chicago. It's uh, it's really it's a, it's a different level here. Yeah. Now, Sanjay, you grew up in Southern California, right? That's right. I did. You went to UCLA, as I recall, because Absolutely. you hate, because you hated UCL USC. <laughs> I think I specifically remember you saying that I hate USC. <laughs> And it's even on your resume. That's right. Yeah. No, just flip that around. Just flip that <laughs> around. And then you got it right. Uh, oh, I flip it around. Okay. Sorry. Um, Sanjay, what did you major in in college? Computer engineering. Okay. So you grew up in what part of Orange County? Or what part uh, of Southern Mission California? Mission Viejo, South Orange County. Yeah. Yep. Okay. You went to SC studied computer engineering and this is this would have been in the 90s is that right yep. mid 90s so, yep oh oh so that was like right when computers started getting even more interesting than they had ever been before yep my sophomore year is the first time i ever heard of the internet my math my my calculus professor told me uh asked me have you ever heard of the world wide web i remember him asking me that after class <laughs> and i said no and i was a computer engineering major <laughs> what was your response? Well, hold on. How did you get, why did you want to do computer engineering if you didn't even know, like, what were you thinking? Like you wanted to design Atari games or what? Right. I mean, it, back in those days, eighties, you know, people were starting to get personal computers in their homes and didn't know what to do with them exactly, but they wanted to have them. And then towards the nineties, you know, we didn't have internet, but, but we were, you know, popping in floppy disks of games and things and doing some word processing and printing from home. So, um, and, back, and that was back in the days when people would say, oh, computers are the wave of the future. People would say that all the time, like they were paid to say that. I heard that all the time. That's the wave of the future. So, uh, you know, I was a young, ambitious, intelligent uh, kid. And I said, well, I'm going to I'm going to study computers. And everybody applauded me for that. So that's why I did it. Mm, OK. Did you have pressure from your family to study that or did they give you did they say study whatever you want? Uh, I wouldn't say pressure, but study whatever you want really wasn't um, really wasn't an option either. My father is from India, and uh, what part? What part of Indiana? Indianapolis, South Bend, Bomb- Bombay, Mumbai, Indiana. Bombay. I've never heard of that part. Yeah, yeah. So is that where? Wait, is that where Mike Pence was? I know he was the governor of Indiana. He might have been there. You have to go. You have to go as far east as you can. Wow. So your dad was from a, a major city it's huge city there yeah in india and he when did he come to us he was a chem, uh, chemical engineer and um i don't think for, i ever knew that yeah for a lot of a lot of indians 
you know, I don't know if I'm stereotyping here or doing something inappropriate. I have no idea, but I don't really. I don't even know what a stereotype is, to be honest with you. That's true. That's a good point. I've never entirely understood the meaning of that term, but in any case. Isn't it just like people talking about their experience? (laughs) Could be. It could be. How they they experienced stuff. It's like stereotypically cars have, you know, four (laughs) wheels and a, well, I mean, you're just saying what a car is. Yeah. When you generalize about a group of people, you know, you know, it it can people can get a little bit nervous or touchy about it. But I think this is true. And I don't think there's anything offensive in it. Uh, But my experience is that, um, uh, you know, the 20th century, maybe things have changed. But Indian immigrants to the West came here for a couple of things. There's sort of, you know, sort of a cliche medical school uh, or engineering. Um, You didn't come here to study philosophy. Right. I mean, that that was thought to be pretty silly. And my dad definitely had that attitude. So he would talk about things like pre-law, pre-med, engineering. If I ever mentioned anything else, which I don't remember ever doing, uh, but he would laugh it off. I remember him sort of mocking philosophy, you know, talking about his college days. He had a friend that studied philosophy and he thought it was absurd and that sort of thing. And I didn't I never knew any cousins or 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 uncles who came and studied in the U.S. or anything like that that did anything other than engineering. So I would say I came from an engineering family. So that was kind of the expectation. Okay. Where did your dad go to college? He went to a small school in, uh, you're not going to believe this, in Indiana. Uh, <laughs> called. Uh, it was in Fort Wayne. Uh, and it was, uh, shoot, I'm sure somebody knows. Uh, I think Indiana Tech, I think, I believe. Uh, but that was for grad school. He did, uh, he did college in was the language that he studied in English in Bombay? I believe so. I mean, it is the national language of India. So all the, you know, youth. Um, yeah, I, I believe it. I believe it was in English. Yeah. Okay. So he had a pretty high level of English coming over here then. Oh, for sure. Every, everybody does. Indian. I mean, in, as I said, India is the, or English is the national language of India. So people that don't speak English, and India is pretty rare, actually. I don't know much about India, to be honest with you. Uh, to be dishonest with you, I know a lot. I want to make sure I cover both the honest and the dishonest. Yeah. Uh, that's what I say when people say honestly, and I'll say, well, but, but cover the other side, too. Say dishonestly. Right. Don't, don't be biased toward the truth. I don't need, we don't need bias in our, in our culture. <laughs> Well, okay, so you're at SC. You grew up a Mission VA Joe. I think you mispronounced it. There's a J in there. I, I yeah, checked. I do, I do that sometimes. Well, wait, how do you say Trader Hose? <laughs> Trader Hose. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm saying that one right either. Trader Jose, yeah, you got it right. Um, well, okay, so you, you're like, if, if people don't know what Mission Viejo is, it's like, um, What's a very nice part of Orange County? It's it's like, it's not the slums. It's right. uh, did you guys have a swimming pool? We didn't. No, barely had a backyard. I know which house it is. Then I know exactly where because there's only one house that doesn't have a swimming pool there. That's right. Um, so you went to SC. Um, you were majoring in, in computer science. Um, 
and you somehow made a switch to philosophy. Was that happening in college or what? Cause I remember, I guess I didn't say my warm anecdote. I probably should say my warm anecdote. I met Sanjay as a graduate student in the philosophy program at Biola. And this would have been early 2000s. And Sanjay worked full time at that time. He worked at a financial services firm and he drove a fair distance from LA County, from, from Southwest LA County to Southeast LA County. And LA County is not a joke as far as traffic goes. You took the 91 probably from Torrance. I, well, I guess you weren't coming from home. Maybe you were coming from home. I don't know, but I think you worked in Brea or something. Yeah, and exactly. Then, and then you maybe, did you just stay there and then come over to Biola or yeah. did you, did you go home and then come back to Biola? Yeah, it varied. It varied. But many days I did that. But you're right. Going back and forth on the 91 uh, was a time consuming part of my life. Yeah, uh, yeah. not fun. Yeah. No, not, not fun. Yeah, the 91 goes through like Compton and the lower part of Compton and through yeah. um, south of Watts. It's not L.A. City. It's that would be 105, which <sighs> is parallel. And uh, into Torrance, which I yeah. were, which I believe is where you were living at the time. You had a family. Yeah. You were one of those guys that had a family. You were married. Um, you had kids. I think they were young at the time. Yep. I, I can't remember how many you had at that time. Um, but you, you had a lot going on. And I just remember you being extremely dedicated. You were a true believer is what I would say you were. You were one of those that does it as a true believer. You you were there because you had a fire burning in your bosom and you you had an insatiable curiosity and you were going to learn this stuff, damn it. <laughs> and uh so um that's that's how I remember you and uh so now okay, you're at SC you were saying how you got into philosophy. Yeah, I, I, well, I didn't get into philosophy per se. I became a, a Christian my freshman year, which was really troubling to my parents because it was a pretty radical conversion. I was raised in a very secular home. My father was a nominal Hindu, as, uh, as many um, more. He, was, he came from a very wealthy home, more affluent uh, Indians, I think, kind of practice a kind of secular kind of Hinduism and came to the U.S. and married an American woman. So, uh, you know, his Hinduism was not um, really central to his life, but it was part of who he, who he was to some degree. My mother was nominal Catholic. And so we had a very secular home. These questions did, just didn't really come up. Um, and so I was a sort of standard American secular teen when I went to college. Uh, which is to say I had something of a um, negative attitude towards Christianity struck me as more than just odd, something that some that other people did, but I didn't understand their motivations. I didn't understand the claim. I heard Jesus saves and no context for what that means. <laughs> and when I hear it explained by my peers, I took offense to it. It sounded silly to me. It was 
poorly expressed. It was sometimes seemed to me to be contradictory. Not that my thinking about big questions was very well formed either. So I became a Christian and my freshman year. Well, uh, there's a big story there. Did, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I guess there's a lot to say about it. Um, but I, did, I didn't did you go to one of those camps where you spoke in tongues and, or almost, what happened? <laughs> not, not too far off. Um, yeah. So I had some friends from high school who, um, were pretty persistent. One thing I did respect about them is they, they were my close friends and they themselves had become believers later in high school. And so that put a little bit of a wedge in our relationship, but they were pretty persistent and would allow me to ask them questions. And we got beyond kind of tit for tat kind of debating into some more serious conversations, which was very good and which I respected. And I was by no means converted or even thinking of doing such a thing, but at least I respected the fact that they were taking it seriously, as seriously as I would want to take it. And uh, in college, I ended up meeting some very um, um, passionate believers and between my old high school friends and these new people that I met in college, um, I was exposed to some clearer and more attractive thoughts about the Christian faith that I hadn't considered, things that I hadn't known. And uh, one night I ended up uh, on the encouragement of a friend reading the Gospel of John. And that night I was just totally undone uh, reading the Gospel of John. I remember thinking at one moment, not quite praying, but I think saying out loud, if anyone knows God, Jesus knows God. I just so totally overwhelmed with the person of Jesus. And so I didn't know it at the time, but now I would express that as the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know what that experience was like. Now I know that experience pretty well, but at the time I, I didn't know that. And so it wasn't just my wisdom or insight in reading the Gospel of John that made me say, aha, yes. So Jesus, right? I wasn't figuring out anything. This was uh, the illuminating work of, of the Spirit. And so in the morning when I woke up, as far as I know, I was a converted believer um, in, in, in the morning. And I had this, this um, new knowledge that I didn't have before I fell asleep, that Jesus was Lord. Uh, and, I, and I did believe it in a very untrained way from that morning forward. Um, so, wow. so I had a, a, a big conversion to the Christian faith big uh dramatic conversion in many ways and that was really odd to my parents but now my did you tell your parents right away <clears throat> within the week i did i kind of had to let things settle and figure out what had happened to me and within the week i did um i actually went home mission viejo orange county not too far from downtown la as you know and went home for the weekend and uh, immediately my sister knew that there was something weird she knew she's six years younger than me. So she was uh, middle school at the time. She knew that something was up and um, she called me out on it immediately. And I pulled out a Bible from my backpack and she, her eyes got really big and she started yelling, he's got a Bible, you know, <laughs> like he's got a bomb or something. And, uh, <laughs> and my, my dad uh, had kind of a stern conversation with me Um and I was a little bit surprised by that. Um, but they were, my, both my parents were very skeptical because they saw the pretty radical change in me and they thought it was cultic. They thought 
somebody had manipulated me. Within about a year time, my, my dad admitted to me that, um, no, the change in me was genuine, he thought, and um, he was impressed by it. And he thought that it had changed me in a good way. He didn't think somebody was manipulating me. So he came just short of saying uh, it was a legitimate conversion. And you really do know Jesus. Um, but that was really nice to hear within a year's time. But as you can imagine, just this radical change in me. Um, Were you a, a party guy? Were you, uh, how, what was your, what would you say the change was? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I wasn't a, I wasn't a big party guy, but a little bit. I was in many ways just a normal American teen. So as a teenager came home drunk a couple times and, you know, had it in with my parents. Yeah. Um, adversarial with my parents at times. It, I wouldn't say that, you know, there's really bad case scenarios that everybody, you know, knows somebody like that or has been like that themselves. It wasn't the worst case and I wasn't a uh, Boy Scout either, somewhere in between. Um, yeah. So the, so the conversion was not really interested in dating, more interested in going to church. My mom thought that was really weird. Um, you know, not interested in drinking or partying or they expected that, you know, I would do some of that stuff and get some of that out of my system, what they expected in a normal way. And I'm really going headlong in the other direction, um, being more chaste, being entirely sober, um, you know, not, again, not, not pursuing girls, not pursuing those sorts of things. Um, always carrying around a Bible, talking about the Bible, you know, that struck them as strange for sure, which is understandable. Um, so yeah, it, it was clear to them that my commitment most of all was to knowing Jesus, talking about Jesus, learning the Bible. Um, and so they, they didn't understand that. So how did this translate into, um, how did this shape your vocational vision? Did you, at this point, were you still thinking, okay, I'm going to go get a job, a normal job, whatever normal means. I don't even know what that means, but just a W2 yeah. uh -huh. job somewhere. Yeah. Um, what was the timeline like and what did that look like in terms of your shaping your what you wanted to do. Yeah. I was a computer engineering major, like I said, and I expected to be doing something in either hardware design or software development or something like that. And this was all, you know, mid early nineties was all sort of burgeoning stuff. And the, yeah. We didn't know where it would go. And, and so it just so many opportunities. And I, I fully expected to do that as I got more settled in a Christian life. Um, and my friends and my the people that I knew best had the same commitments. Um, I got to, you know, be exposed to what Christian ministry was and the value of it and thought maybe I would do that. Maybe I would pastor um, because this took up all of my mental and emotional time was uh, being a biblical Christian more so than being a computer engineer. And of course, there's a lot of computer engineers who are both biblical Christians and computer engineers, and they do one thing vocationally, and the other thing is, you know, the biggest, it has to do with the biggest issues and matters in their lives. For me, 
everything was sort of sucked into, you know, becoming a biblical Christian and understanding what had happened in my conversion. So I thought, well, you could kilter two birds with one stone by going into ministry and sort of bringing those two things together. And my thinking was kind of moving in that direction, but I never left. I never left uh, computer engineering at USC. There wasn't a good option in the religion department or something like that to study theology. That was Yeah, so Brea, if you don't know Orange County, how it relates to Southeast or uh, L.A. County and, and La Mirada, where Biola is, Brea is about six miles away or something, maybe. Is it? Down Imperial Highway, it's like 15-minute drive, something, something like that. So that would have been convenient for you. How did the classes work out for you as far as popping over after work? I was hoping it would somehow miraculously work out perfectly. Yeah. And, uh, and at, you know, at the time, it's not like it is now. Um, right, right. With, with a lot of flexibility. There was far less, <clears throat> excuse me, far less flexibility at the time. So I was able to find an evening class or two, but it was, you know, the, the commitment would have been a sort of daytime on campus classwork um, kind of commitment. So I, I ended up, you know, working it out that uh, with my boss that I could use some vacation days and uh, I would use those hours midday and he would consider a longer lunch, but it would count as vacation time. And so I 
more or less had my hair on fire in those years where I would just work it out from semester to semester, try, you know, try to make it work. And um, by God's grace, it, it worked. Um, but yeah, my hair was on fire and my wife, my poor wife was at home uh, more than she needed to be or wanted to be with some very young kids. So it was, it was very hectic times for our family. How uh, young were your kids at that time? Early 2000s, I had my oldest two. What are the um, names? Do you want to say? So, yeah. So Serena, she was born in 2000, right before I started the program. She just graduated from USC. Oh, just wow. Oh, yep. my gosh, dude. Yep. Yeah. Just oh, wow. <laughs> yep. So that was just a few months ago. She I just I feel like I just aged 40 years. Oh, yeah. Feel it. Feel it. Uh, which is which is surprising for a professor to say, because, you know, you've been in the classroom for quite some time like me. And, you know, every year we get kids just as young as they've always been. And we realize that we're moving. But our yeah, students... that's why I think that's why it's so weird sometimes. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, my, my oldest, she just graduated from college. My second oldest, Nathaniel, um, he's a Division One lacrosse player. Really proud of him living his dream, playing lacrosse on the East Coast right now. Um, and then I've got two younger ones uh, that that um, were born a little bit later in the 2000s, uh, Zeke and Grace, and uh, they're they're with us at home still. So, um, but the time I knew you when I first met you would have been the early 2000s. So we had the two at home. So, uh, how many degrees did you do at Biola? I did moved over from apologetics when I realized. Um, that the apologetics degree I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed studying it. And I thought, you know, what can you do with it? It's really a ministry-based degree. And I thought, this is awesome. Maybe I could actually, instead of just consuming apologetics and then turning around into ministry, maybe I could actually produce apologetics. I don't know. And so I yeah. was un unfamiliar with, with Christian philosophy, totally unfamiliar with it. Um, really didn't know that it was at the time you didn't realize that it's really philosophy that's driving the apology most of the apologetics yeah really had no and idea it's a standard discipline and you can major in it at any college pretty much almost that's right including that's right. usc yeah my little christian community at usc you know we thought of very you know very fideistic that is kind of faithy and preachy in our understanding of the Christian faith, as opposed to rigorously philosophical. In, uh, and you never took a class with Dallas Willard, right? Never did. Never did. What does that does that is that pain you as you look back on it? I think, so. I think so. In hindsight, it would have been a great opportunity. I went to some lectures that he gave, but okay. I wasn't ready to study philosophy at Biola. I realized Fair philosophy. Enough. Yeah, I, I realized it was a real discipline. It wasn't mm -hmm. just a secular discipline. It could be done in fidelity to the Christian faith. Uh, so people like J.P. Moreland, uh, you know, were there, Scott Ray. And, you said uh, you know, infidelity, two words. <laughs> <laughs> not one, not one, not one, not, not infidelity. Yeah. Okay. I should have said, right. yes, yeah. So... Yeah, these guys gave a, a great model of how to bring those things together. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, they were producing. a lot of them were Dallas Willard grads right out of USC. That's a, that's the funny thing about your story. Yeah, yeah, that is that's exactly right. And so um, 
you said fideistic. So for people who don't know what that word means, what would you say it means? You said that your your USC time, your group was fideistic. There's yeah. probably somebody out here that's wondering what that means. What do you mean? Yeah, by that? for sure. For sure. Um, so it's not it's not a compliment. <laughs> well, for some people it is. And they are about fideists. They say I, I ascribe to fideism. Um, and from my perspective, no, I, I don't use it in a complimentary way because I do think it's a it's a wrong understanding of um, how Christian thought should operate. But here, here's the idea. Here's one way to think of it. Um, the Christian faith, of course, rooted in the Bible, has certain scientific, historical, and let's say uh, ethical um, entailments. So first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, that has certain scientific entailments. For example, one, one thing that we might imagine then is that I guess the universe began to exist. I guess the universe isn't eternal as the vast majority of Christian theologians and Bible interpreters have always understood that. Despite the fact that some of the best ancient thinkers thought that the universe was eternal, for example, Aristotle insisted that the universe was eternal and insofar as Aristotelian science was influential, it was hard to square those two things. So one way you can go is you can just say Aristotle beat it. Um, and I, I believe the word and, well, how do you respond to Aristotle? I don't, I don't, I have nothing to say to him. Um, does he have anything that's insightful that's helpful to us? I don't care. The fideistic attitude would say something like that. So it separates Christian commitment from philosophy, science, and history and keeps them in, in entirely separate categories. And that can lead to all sorts of harmful consequences. Um, I grew up in a church like that. Yeah. That, that was the church I grew up in, fideistic. Yeah, it's, it's very common because... Anti-intellectual, you know, right? Wouldn't you say it's anti-intellectual? That would be one way to, to um, characterize it as anti-intellectual. Uh, absolutely. There, there are some brilliant fideists. It doesn't mean stupid. By no means does it mean stupid. So Karl no, Barth, no, no. probably the, the most well-known 20th century Protestant theologian, um, could be accused of having a fideistic view, but the guy was brilliant. They just want to keep them separate. And there's all sorts of bad consequences. And I think the reason is, is because I tell my students this, you can't help being a philosopher, scientist, and historian. Yeah. You're a philosopher by birth because you have rational thoughts. That's right. You know, you get here today in class, dressed nicely, you know, ready to learn, ready to people think. People dress it. nicely for your classes. Wait, do. where do you teach? <laughs> yeah, they dress very nicely, appropriately enough. It, it works for me. And um, cool. Sorry, I interrupted you. Well, they're they're there, ready to think about their thoughts, to do some philosophy, to do some second order thinking. So I said. Even though you're not a professional philosopher with a PhD, you're a philosopher by birth. You're a scientist by birth. You have sense organs. You can see things, touch things, taste things, smell things, and make um, uh, form knowledge based on your sense experiences. That's that's what science is, is rooted in. Hmm. And then you're a historian by birth because you have a memory. You remember things, and you have a sort of construction of the past. 
So you can be a bad philosopher, scientist, and historian, but you can't be a non-philosopher, scientist, and historian. You're going to have a philosophical, scientific, and historical view of the world. If yes. you're going to be a Christian at the same time, then we've got to bring together the words of prophets and apostles inspired by and illuminated by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives mm-hmm. with our philosophical, scientific, and historical understandings and bring them together. That's what discipleship is about in large measure, to bring the heart and the head together. Media sort of keeps them separate and I think keeps us in the schizophrenic state, which Mm -hmm. I think is very unfortunate in a lot of people's lives. So you're taking, so you, you realize what, at what point did you realize Christian apologetics? There's a lot of philosophy here and it's a, that's a thing. And, oh, Biola uh, has a degree in that. And uh, what do you know? I can just uh, sign up for those classes. Right. When, when was that happening? Oh, so yeah. So um, I got to Biola, started in apologetics, switched over to philosophy. And when I realized the value of it, did the degree in philosophy, graduated around 2006. I looked at some grad schools in philosophy and Really, I realized at the time, and my wife and I were talking about it, that I really had a sense that God was calling me to philosophical theology because of my love for the Bible, my love for the doctrines of the Christian faith, and to express the Christian faith in a philosophically astute way, but not necessarily to be a philosopher. As yeah. you knew at the time, we had, we had these real superstar um, friends and, and um and um, classmates who went to some of the best schools of philosophy for PhD. I didn't see myself personally um, in that same vein. So I stayed at Biola Talbot and I studied uh, theology as well. So I got an MA theology to sort of bring those things together a little bit better, which was really valuable to me. And then I was about to graduate uh, for the second time in 2008. And uh, someone in the registrar's office said to me, you know, you've got so many units here. If you take one more class, literally you need one unit. You can have the degree in apologetics too. So I said, okay. So 2008, I I did philosophy and apologetics. And so with all of that, I've got now philosophy, theology, and apologetics. I felt pretty well-rounded. And uh, then I went on to Claremont and and, uh, transitioned to finally, with four kids at this point, quitting my career. My wife was very supportive went over to Claremont, still stayed in Southern California because of the, you know, the family. We just had another baby. I was considering going to Aberdeen in Scotland um, and, and was talking to the faculty there. And we realized that's, that's not going to happen. We, that would have been a major move. <laughs> major. Wow. But as you could, you could tell my head was in the clouds at that time and my wife <laughs> was me down to earth. So I went to Claremont and it was, it was a great time. Were uh, you vested at Capital Group yet? I was. Okay. That probably helps. That, that helped a ton. That helped a ton to get through all of that. Vested basically means your, your 401k has tenure. <laughs> right. So that's right. So you, that takes like six years or something. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Now you, you, uh, you have three degrees from Biola now and you're, you're looking at Claremont and, um, it, you're thinking, oh, I can do a PhD there and, and have it match up with my interests in philosophical theology. Yeah. So again, I got on the internet and I was looking for PhDs in philosophical theology or philosophy of religion. 
And it turned out that I, I could find two. One was at Oxford, and uh, and one was uh, one was at Claremont. Um, I was, as I mentioned, I was looking at Aberdeen and a couple other schools in Scotland because I was kind of dabbling with systematic theology, and, and Aberdeen was a great place for systematic theology at the time. So, um, who was I there kinda, at Claremont that you could study with? So at Claremont, they they explicitly had a, a degree. It was called philosophy of religion and theology. There was no other degree like that. And it was known as a very theologically liberal place, um, very different than Biola. Theologically liberal, one way to define it, as opposed to um, not necessarily conservative, uh, but, but maybe the alternative would be biblical Christianity as opposed to liberal Christianity. Biola Talbot's very biblically Christian place. That is to say, that's the MO of evangelicals, is to say, yes. That's interesting. Where is that in the Bible? Right? If, I, <laughs> if I make some philosophical claim, evangelicals will say, okay, is that biblical? That's kind of the evangelical MO. Mm-hmm. So biblical Christianity, most Christians would think, is there another kind? Well, <laughs> right. Right. So it seems like it's almost redundant to say, but there is another kind. Uh, yeah. Is it a Christianity or not? Okay, we can talk about that. Right, right, right. But you've got biblical Christianity where we want to root our beliefs in Scripture in some valid way. Liberal Christianity is not necessarily motivated by that. Um, one way to define biblical Christianity, it would be continuing on the general outline of the Christian faith or perhaps carrying on the sort of central doctrines of the Christian faith without rooting them in the Bible, per se. They want to root them in something else, something maybe more relevant to our times. So in the 19th and 20th century, we saw that happening a lot. Whether there even is liberal Christianity anymore, liberal doesn't mean I voted for Biden. You know, it's not politically liberal, although sometimes those things do go together. But it means liberal in the sense that I'm open to more sources for theology than just the Bible, or they might say the Bible was an older source for Christian theology. Now we have a newer one. So, of course, I went to Claremont with a good bit of skepticism, but knowing that there were people there, although they didn't come to the conclusions that I might want to, that thought deeply about bringing theology and philosophy together. And insofar as they trained themselves and trained others to do that work, I just wanted to learn how to do that. I didn't necessarily want to come to their wacky conclusions. Right. And and did they accept you? Yeah, Uh, I don't mean... Uh, admit you into the program i mean when you yeah. got there socially were you accepted that's the funny thing that the, 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 uh, the funny experience i was told by some biola profs you're gonna have to keep your head down and maybe they're gonna they're gonna see you as a fundamentalist and um and, and you might not fit in very so well in, in other words you're they're intolerant right <laughs> right something like that they're not gonna I mean, why, why don't you just say that i mean It'd be like if you you're a black person and you're like, I'm thinking about going to this Klan rally. Uh, <laughs> can you give me some feedback? They don't go. Well, you want to keep your head down. Right. Uh, you know, they might not accept you. Right. Yeah, I, I don't mean, know. If I don't know if it's that bad. <laughs> but the, the analogy thing, is not. Well, the good thing is, is you can put a hood on and and <laughs> if you <laughs> you you don't, they can't see that you're black. I guess. Well, I guess they could because they could see your hands. I don't know. I've never worn one of those costumes, so I guess they can see inside your eyes. But yeah. Anyway. But anyway, it's going to come out right some at some right. point. Right. 
I don't so, know why you'd want to go to a Klan rally, though. I, I guess <laughs> if it was some if it was something you needed for your interests or your work and you had to go through the Klan rally to get there, I guess. Anyway, it's not a perfect analogy, but none, right, none, right. no analogies are perfect. So sure. So, yeah. yeah, I would I would not I would I would not personally compare the faculty and students in the religion department to uh, Klansmen, but there's, there's <laughs> well, definitely well, but you you have to I think what you really mean is you already have compared them and they're different. OK, I think, that, I think that's what you mean. Yeah, that's that's a good distinction. There's philosophically yeah. astute. So yeah. um, you have to do the comparison first to find out if they're different. That's why absolutely. people say, do you just compare me? And they're they're all offended as if merely comparing something is is evil or bad. No, no. Comparing is just called thinking. Right. You, you do it all the time. And 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 so it's just short. That was just shorthand for I've done the comparison and they're different. Yep. Yep. Well uh, anyway. Done. OK, sorry. Yeah. So at, at Claremont. Um, yeah. The interesting thing was, I feel as if in many ways I was accepted. And um, That's good. there were some people there that were intellectual liberals mm-hmm. in the best sense. Oh. In the in the best sense. Open minded. That's good. Not not prejudging so much. Okay. Um, and that was sometimes. That was by no means most of the time. Um, I would say most of the time for a okay, so a theological conservative, or I said biblical Christian, somebody who's sort of conserving and keeping mm-hmm. the Christian tradition which is rooted back in to the Bible itself, having sort of that backwards looking perspective rather than a forwards looking, what's the new thing kind of perspective like they had at Claremont. Um, as you can imagine, there's some people that just consider that just so quaint and even silly. And so I did get that attitude sometimes. Oh, that's well. interesting. But I just feel like at Talbot, I, I got so much really good, solid, clear-minded thinking that I was, I never felt, Hmm. I I never felt insecure. I never felt as if if I couldn't, you know, you know, stand up on my own two feet um, and and, and make the case for something that the professor was trying to contradict. I had no problem doing that. Maybe I was a bit more arrogant at the time and a little bit too confident in myself, but grad school gets some of that out of you. So you become more intellectually humble. And I definitely did, but I never felt any insecurity or anything. In fact, one professor, um, he's the chair of um, process theology at Claremont. So that's a very radical liberal theology. I was actually his research assistant. We had a good relationship, although I didn't like that stuff. I didn't believe in any of it. What's the uh, name of the person? His name is Roland Faber. Roland Faber. Uh, So I had a very good relationship with him. And um, he was... As I was mentioning, some of the more open-minded, thoughtful, um, liberal in the best sense kind of people. He, I, for me, he was one of them. Very helpful to me. Was and, he on uh, your dissertation? Was he? He ended up not being just because. Okay. Uh, lib- because process theology and the kind of work that he did, he could have been, and he, I think, it would have been great. I never asked him to because it just was a little bit too out of step with what he did. And I got some people that I thought were more appropriate for my committee, but uh, what he was said the, Oh, what was the most interesting class you took there? Um, there was a couple interesting classes. I, I took a class in medieval Trinitarianism. 
which ended up being really, I didn't know at the time being really, this is before I decided to do Trinity as a research project and, and dissertation work. Really helpful to me. I took another class with Michael Shermer. I don't know if you know his name. He's the president of the Skeptic Society and uh, really rabid atheist, sort of public atheist. Took can you give me some? Can you give me some evidence that he's ahead of the Skeptic Society? I just, I just don't believe it. I, I, I don't. I, just, I, I'm not, I know it on the basis of testimony. People have told me that it's true, and so I just accept it. Testimony is good evidence, then. I don't think so. Uh, I think you have to see it for yourself. <laughs> How can I know that testimony is good evidence, though? I mean, I've heard it. I've heard that. Right. Anyway. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, Lucas, sorry for this dorky jokes here. You need evidence for your evidence all the way down. An infinite stream of evidence is <laughs> all you need, and then you know it. So I'll, I take, your, I'll take your word for it. Thank you. Um, I took a class with him on uh, evolution and economics, very strange, strange combination, evolution and economics. I, I learned nothing about economics in that class, but we read some, <laughs> we read some books on Darwinism and yeah. uh, man, I was a pain in that class. I was always um, sort of trying to take a intellectual hackett to naturalism, uh, not, not hackett, what do I want to say, uh, hatchet, hatchet to, to, um, to naturalism and um, always being, trying to be kind and thoughtful, but uh, in hindsight, I was pretty combative. But my goodness, Shermer's whole understanding of these philosophical issues was so sophomoric. It was so just basic. Uh, I, I just was, I was just appalled. Honestly, I was just, just appalled that this was a graduate class. And, uh, and so, <laughs> you know, I just, I just, I'm glad for that exercise in that class. I didn't learn anything of value in it, um, but I did get exposed to sort of a popularizer of atheism with a PhD and the sort of level of thinking that they're willing to bring to the topic, just utterly unimpressed. Um, and so that just emboldened me even more. Um, gosh, the gospel is so much deeper, so much more thoughtful. And if this is one of the best examples of what contemporary atheism can do my gosh my yeah. gosh we're gonna win easy it's a selective skepticism it's that's the funny thing about michael Shermer's deal is he's very selectively skeptic i it now i want to ask you a question is he um is he a libertarian then on economics is he like a hayek fan did you pick up on any of that yeah that's a that's a really good question as i said because a lot of those guys do like the evolutionary. Um, yeah. um, they, when you talk about top-down economic models, <clears throat> libertarians correctly are skeptical about whether any centralized authority has enough knowledge to plan out the economy, like, for example, Democrats want to do. Hmm. With, and so they are they love the free market which has no designer no planner comes together from the bottom up and there's there's a it, it appears to be designed but it's not so for example here's an example of like getting lunch in new york city there's no lunch commissioner there's no bureaucrat that centralized all those decision making about lunch no it's it's a bunch of 
apparently random folks in the marketplace trying to meet a need and make make a buck and it looks and what do you know it's 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 organized so they they look at evolution like that and they see see so it's it's i'm always conflicted when i talk to folks like that because i love exactly what they're saying about economics that's true that's true the the free market is much better at at being efficient and you know people get lunch a lot more efficiently because there's no bureaucrat dictating all of those decisions about which hot dog stand will serve how much relish and and which uh fancy uh deli will blah 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 and what time so anyway um i was just curious i didn't i don't know anything about his economic views but it wouldn't sur- surprise me that he's a hayek person yeah there was a, there was another professor for that class who was there a whole lot less than Shermer, and he uh took on the economic side and for the life of me i can't remember his name oh okay um, who taught but, your medieval trinitarianism was that uh min it was anselm, anselm min. Min. Just passed away. yeah anselm min what a first name yeah yeah korean born brilliant <laughs> theologian wow um uh yeah. Yeah, yeah. jesuit um i believe um catholic theologian who had been when he went to when he came to claremont very theologically liberal i think hegelian you know modern philosopher trying to bring together modern philosophy and you know the historical christian faith and, and but he as far as i understand i i think he recanted all of that and became more of a traditional catholic uh to mystic that is thomas aquinas medieval um uh, style theologian, which ironically jives much better with the Protestant view of things. At least it's historically mm-hmm. set, and that sort of historical trajectory goes back to the apostles and prophets and things. So there's a much more commonality. So when I took the class with him, it was very helpful to me. Did was he on your committee? He was. Cool. Yeah. Now, what did you do your dissertation on? My dissertation was broadly on Trinitarian theology, specifically on how you can tell the difference between legitimate Trinitarian theology and Tritheism. Legitimate Trinitarian theology versus Tritheism. Let me, right. That's a mouthful. Legitimate, this needs to be a t-shirt. Legitimate Trinitarian theology versus Tritheism. Yeah. Okay. Now, <clears throat> what the heck does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Tritheism means there's three gods. Right. Uh, and that is, of course, not what Christians believe, right? Christians believe there's one God. Christians believe there's one God. So legitimate Trinitarian theology would mean... It's got to be um, historically, biblically based. It's orthodox. It's not heretical. It's um, <clears throat> that's what makes it legitimate. And Trinitarian means there's a tripersonal active being that created the world, brought it into existence, and sustains it, and right. will judge and will judge it at the at the end of time. Is that something? Is that right? That's right. So. Um, fascinating topic because i think a lot of people come to the trinity and it is so puzzling it's like what in the world is going on here 
Yeah. Yeah. So I can see why you'd be attracted to that topic because, uh, hello, like huge, hugely important, hugely important. Many people would say central to the Christian in the way that a, uh, yes, a hub is central to a wheel. So many things feed directly into that. And if that hub collapses, the whole wheel collapses. And having my background in both philosophy and theology, it occurred to me that this idea of the Trinity should be theological and biblical. It should derive from the Bible. That's my MO as an evangelical. So it should be biblical. But when we take the next step, when we try to think about what the Bible is saying about God, it's inevitably a, a philosophical step. Now we're trying to come up with analogies to understand how all of what the Bible says about God makes sense we're immediately presented with this apparent contradiction, this very unwieldy thought that there's one God. How many gods? Let's count gods. We Christians, we start counting and we get to one and we stop. We don't go beyond that. But nonetheless, we say, but there are three divine persons. There are three divine persons and person does not mean God in this sense. So the three divine persons that we encounter in the New Testament in particular, very clearly, Jesus comes preaching and teaching about his father who's in heaven. Everybody knows that he's talking about the God of Israel, the one God that the Jews have worshipped from Mount Sinai to his day. So they knew that they were. T- he was talking about his father was Yahweh of Israel, right? Mm-hmm. But then the Gospels present Jesus himself as being fully divine. Paul, the apostle, outside of the Gospels, he says this in Colossians 1, the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Jesus goes so far as to say, when you've seen me, You've seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He wasn't claiming to be the Father, however. He was only claiming to be as divine as the Father, having the same divinity. And so the New Testament talks very consistently about Jesus' full divinity. He's not God-ish. He's not very God-like. We go so far as to say he is God. And that's a legitimate, proper thing to say about Jesus. We don't say he's a second God because there is no such thing as a second God. But he is distinct from the Father. He's not the Father because when he says to his disciples, I'm going to pray to the Father, he's not lying to them. He's not going to talk to himself for a bit. When he says the Father sent me, he's not lying to them. He's telling them that someone else sent me. When he says the Father loves the Son, when he says I'm leaving you, but I will send another helper, namely the Holy Spirit. He's speaking there of a third divine person who carries on God's mission of salvation and redemption and all of that. And so in himself has all of God's power and wisdom. And so the New Testament presents three distinct persons. They really are distinct persons, but they're not divided persons. They're not separate beings. So now the difficult, apparently contradictory question we have is how is it that there's one divine being? simultaneously presented as three divine persons, three distinct divine persons, not, not one divine person playing three roles, sort of consistently deceiving us, pretending to be different divine persons. That would just be divine deception, but really three divine persons in loving communion. They really do love each other the way that a husband loves a wife. That's one loving another. And then a husband and wife together loving their child, that's two loving a third. That apparently is what the New Testament communicates to us about the Father, Son, and Spirit, that there really is interpersonal love. 
not a sort of self-love, but interpersonal love, and yet there's only one divine being. So that's obviously just thinking about it. the Bible presents us with that data, but doesn't tell us exactly how to think those things simultaneously. And so the next step is inevitably a philosophical step. And in my reading, I found a lot of people, both historical and contemporary, that seemed to me to just be tritheists, that they were just inevitably saying, here's the only way we can understand it. We Christians have to say that there are three gods. And they just bite the bullet on that. And I, I you know, my response was, no, we can't do that. We absolutely cannot do that for not just biblical reasons, but also serious philosophical reasons. We can't do that. And so I wanted to think about that question and understand what the difference was. Not for, so what are the philosophical reasons? I, I got the biblical data. So what's the <laughs> philosophical data that I'm missing? Sure. Here's one really important reason I think that we ought not say that there are three gods. The biblical uh, uh, characterization of God is that he is maximally great. And so we could find a number of different chapters and verses that talk about God's maximal greatness in a number of ways. His knowledge is inexhaustible, right? David would say in the Psalms, there's nothing that God doesn't know. And so in theology, we say he's omniscient, that is all-knowing. God is um, inexhaustibly powerful. Um, he never runs out of energy. There's never any uh, task that he cannot accomplish if he wills to. And so we say he's all-powerful or omnipotent and so on. And so God is maximally great. Uh, and again, we can search all the prophets and apostles and, and find all of the data for this. But if you've read the Bible long enough, you can just ask yourself the question, do you think a prophet or apostle would ever admit that God is limited in some sense? Like God knows a lot of things, but he doesn't know everything. God can do a lot of things, but he can't do everything. Now, biblically, that doesn't even seem um, uh, like an open option. Uh, they speak of God in such uh, absolutely effusive ways that it just leaves no room for any lack or um, or limitation in God. And so God is maximally great, we would say. Okay, so now here's the question. If the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally divine, that is, they're all maximally great, and yet divided particular individuals, like three man, then we would run into certain absurd consequences. So we might say, let's say the Father and the Son are separate, maximally great gods. We might say, can the Son keep some secret knowledge from the Father? Well, on the one hand, the answer is no, because the Father is all-knowing. So there's nothing secret that the Father doesn't know. On the other hand, the answer would be yes, because the Son is all-powerful. So you and I can't keep secrets. You might be able to keep a secret from People close to you, you might be very well trained to be able to keep secrets from the CIA, despite that they're, you know, threatening your family and pulling out fingernails. But you can't ever keep a secret from God. He doesn't have to do anything to you to get the secret out. He immediately knows all of your secrets because he's all knowing. Only God can actually keep a secret because God is all powerful. We couldn't trick him to tell us the truth. We couldn't perceive in his divine mind or threaten him or do anything to get the secret out of him. So if Jesus, the second uh, God, is just as divine as the first God, well, then the answer again would be yes, he can keep a secret because he's all-powerful. So now you have a situation 
potential state of affairs in which the answer to the question, can Jesus keep a secret from the Father, is both yes and no. And if it's both yes and no, that's a contradiction. That's a clear contradiction. If it's in the same sense, yeah. In the same sense. Yeah, okay. And so th that would be an absurd state of affairs, which means a state of affairs that can't be real. The only way to have three gods is to say that they're not maximally great. So polytheism never involves a god that's maximally great. All of their gods, even if you have a highest god, they all have limitations. Yeah. But that's not going to fit with biblical Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, and then, then the Muslims would come along and say, see, we're better. We can make sense of that. They do. They, they say, see, we're better, and that this is why you should opt for monotheism. But here's a real problem for Islam, a philosophical problem for Islam. If we Christians say that the, that the God of, of, of the Bible is maximally great, let's go with the name Yahweh, that's the biblical name, and, uh, and Muslims say, no, 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 Allah is the true God. The Bible's been corrupted, and only the Quran is, is pure, and Allah is the true God. And Allah is maximally great, and they're, they're separate ideas altogether. Here's the problem for Islam. We might ask uh, a Muslim the theologian, is God maximally loving? Among his great-making properties, he's maximally knowing, he's maximally powerful. Is Another great-making property is to be loving. Is he maximally loving? And they would say, yes, I, I think Islamic theologians would say, yes, Allah is, in fact, maximally loving. He has no limitations. OK, here's the problem. When you Force. say great, uh, let me slow you down really quick. You, you, you say great making. So um, some some folks might be hanging on and then get to that part and go, wait, what, what do you mean by great making? And I think what you're saying is. We're talking about maximal greatness. Just grant that God is maximally great. Um, ontological argument, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the great making properties, by that you mean something that makes the greatest thing the greatest thing, is being loving. That's what you're saying, right? That's, that's right. Fair to say? Yeah. Okay. A great making property, theologians, yeah, that's a kind of a technical term of theology, something just intuitively, we, we don't have to get, you know, you just can't get too scientific about this, unfortunately. Uh, you, you have to employ a little bit of intuition. What intuitively is it better to have? Um, it's better to have power and ability than to lack it. It's better to have knowledge than to be ignorant. It's better to have love than to lack love. So it's, there's no such thing as being maximally evil, because evil isn't a thing to have. It's Evil is an expression of something that we lack, namely we lack holiness and love and those good things, right? So it's like darkness is the absence of light. It's not the presence of some alternative substance. So this per, this depends on a privation view of evil? Like yeah. Evil is a privation, okay? Yeah. And right. In the same okay. way that, that lacking power is not the presence of something contrary to power, it's, you know, or impotence, we would say, it's not the presence of power but it's lack of power um ignorance so is evil is like weakness you mean weakness yeah. is the absence of strength exactly okay. exactly and so um so god being maximally great if we have a concept of any being max being maximally great we would just ask what is it better to have than, than not and we have to engage our intuition so intuitively i think islamic and christian theologians would agree that god must be by nature 
maximally loving, perfectly loving. When God loves, he does, he never does so inadequately or imperfectly as we humans do. We never love perfectly. God Other, otherwise, that would be a deficiency, which cannot be in a maximally great being. Right. Okay. Right. So Makes here's the problem for Makes Islamic sense. theology. Is God actually maximally loving or only potentially maximally loving? Well, actually, God isn't potentially all-knowing eternally. He's eternally all-knowing. He's not po- potentially all-powerful. Like, God, if you really work at it, you could become all-powerful. You're, you're almost there. No, no, that would be, never be something. There's, there's a certificate program. You can get it online. Right. So God doesn't develop more power, develop more knowledge. He doesn't develop more love. He's not potentially maximally loving. He's actually maximally loving. Well, in Islam, God can't love, Allah can't love until there's an object of his love. And so he has to create someone to love, and then he can express himself as being actually maximally loving. But if he has to create somebody to express his love, then he's not maximally free. He is um, uh, uh, required to do something to express his love. God isn't required to do anything. God is maximally free. A maximal view of God would have God being maximally free. You and I aren't maximally free. There are things that we have to do, right? You have to respirate and keep breathing to keep living. You, yeah. you, you don't have the choice to stop breathing and keep living. Right, right. Uh, God doesn't have to make any sorts of um, choices to sustain himself. He, is, he, do, he doesn't have to do anything for any reason. Um, he's maximally free. And so if we have a maximal view of God, which Muslims have, or at least claim to have theologically, then you have to have something like Trinitarian theology. Because if God is an eternal lover by nature, there must be an object of his eternal love, namely an eternal beloved. And this is how we would express the idea of the father and the son in Trinitarian theology without separating the being of God into two parts. Um, And so it would seem just philosophically there's better reason to be something like a Trinitarian um, to, to start than a strict Unitarian. Yeah. So that that's a double doozy. You just got two for the price of one. What you did was just take out Judaism and Islam at the same time. I mean, a, a wrong understanding of Judaism, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Uh, wrong understanding. Judaism is, as I understand it, would be something that develops in second in the second temple period. That's the temple built, you know, after the Babylonian captivity, after the end of the Old Testament, or at the end of the Old Testament, five eighty six or something like that. On right, and the the time that Jesus is preaching, we see BC by the way, BC. Exactly, around the time that Jesus is preaching, we see the advent. I think of what we would now call Judaism. It's not necessarily the religion of the Old Testament. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. The right. religion of Paul. Right when he was Saul. Yeah. And so in that in that sense, Judaism, we might say, is just as old as Christianity. If not, okay, this, this is going to be fighting words, and I can imagine somebody getting <laughs> about this. Well, please don't be controversial on the Republican professor, because <laughs> we are just so, we're all about pleasing people and just making everybody feel like there's no controversy anywhere ever. <laughs> okay, good. Good to know. <laughs> so, just say say what you need to say just like john mayer said say what I you least, need to say i at least for the sake of charity i at least like to recognize I, i'll tell you you know what i think at any time but i at least like to recognize 
that there are thoughtful people who I don't dismiss out of hand that might disagree and I'm happy to continue talking with them. But that's the idea. So Fair enough. So Judaism is no older than, if not a bit younger than Christianity, because Judaism, as we know it as a religion today, actually has intrinsic to it some claims about Jesus, namely that he is not the Messiah of Israel. Um, if you're making claims about Jesus, that is consequent to, that is after the Christian claim has been made. Islam is the same way. It, it makes anti-Christian, anti-Jewish claims. Um, Christianity and Judaism have to exist for Islam to then have those claims be central to their theology. So as I see it, uh, one way to think of it is that Christianity is actually older. And as an evangelical wow. Christian, of course, this is controversial, but it doesn't matter. Uh, everybody knows that evangelical biblical Christians would say that Christianity is actually the right expression of, of biblical religion. So the whole Old Testament right. is about Jesus Christ. And so thinking that Jesus is not the Messiah and having a religion based on that would be a total misunderstanding of the Hebrew Bible. Yes. And for those listening who are thinking at this point, yeah, but doesn't this just uh, depend on which books are in the Bible and how that all came about? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Because, but that's a, a bracketed conversation over here and you have to do that. You have to move through the topic and you can take note and kind of nod and go, okay, that's a door over there. I need to go over there at some point. I need right. to go over here at some point, maybe study some logic over here. Uh, uh, nature of contradictions study uh, the history of islam over here okay but you can't do everything at once i mean you're right. doing quite a lot actually right now and and that's just the nature of the discussion you kind of take note of what you need to come back to and you can come back to it later is that right. fair to say okay yeah and that's that's been how i've approached a lot of things yeah so it's not like you have to accomplish everything at the same time you can't it's just impossible to talk about thoughtfully talk about the Trinity, which is a huge thing. I mean, some people might think you're spending way too much time on this. This is crazy. Well, but it's huge. It's a huge thing. It's it may be the hugest thing in history, right? I mean, you're talking sure. about how we divide the dates. This is uh, 2022 after. <laughs> right. It's not after the Big Bang. Right. It's, you know, it's not after uh, some Michael Shermer would say we came, the first human came from a non-human. Anyway, um, okay, so did your, how did you say it? What was the word you used? Your dad was a nominal Hindu? Yeah. Is, that, is that what you said? <clears throat> Does your... Indian background, ethnic background. Both your parents are Indian? My mother's not. My mother's uh, mainly Italian. Italian. Oh, okay. So does that did, did your father's background at all? And that just did that kind of shape your concern about getting the Trinity right ever? Or was that just because a really lot of a lot of people don't think about the Trinity very much. And I, when I thought of the Trinity as a topic for this, I thought I immediately thought of you because I think it's because we, when we talked through the years, 
you expressed interest in it and and i i remember lodging that in my soul like i'm so glad that sanjay is interested in that because i don't think i want to do that work but i know it has to be done and i'm so glad he's chasing that down <laughs> thank you for saying that and i feel the same yeah. way about you uh and I, you know I, I i you know things are so politically charged and understanding politics and economics and things like that. I'm very much a novice and sometimes I pretend to uh, have understanding about those things and make big statements. But then as I'm being more realistic, I realize I, I don't understand this stuff. And so, um, so I know the feeling that you're talking about, I feel the same way about you and, and I can pick out other people that like, I'm so glad you're doing that. I'm never going to do that. <laughs> yeah. So the, so, the, the, yeah. Tr so yeah, I mean, it's it's a refreshing to because every once in a while I have anxiety about it, to be honest with you, I I'll, I'll be reading and I'll be like, this is just weird. The Trinity is just weird. Yeah. And I can understand why someone would think it's weird. Yeah. I mean, the father and the son and the where's the mother and like, you know, right. does he have an enemy sisters and then the Holy Spirit and it just existed that way from eternity and right. it just sounds weird because we're ordinarily thinking of a father and a son as a human thing. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's male, it sounds yeah. male. So what do you say to that? Yeah. Um, it is weird. It's absolutely weird. And uh, it's okay to say that it's weird, even for committed Christians, we should admit that and, uh, and, and try to become a little bit more comfortable with the weirdness. Weird uh, doesn't mean wrong. It never has meant wrong. Right. There's um, a lot of things that are weird that are real. Yeah. And given our limited and in some ways intellectually perverted perspective on things, uh, we should expect that a true understanding of God would strike us as weird um, because we're sort of out of step with it and limited. But um, humans are weird. Absolutely. Absolutely. Reality is weird. When you think about, you know, the big questions, metaphysics, and you get into the deepest questions of physics, reality, it's weird. So fair that's enough, fair enough. Yeah. Chemistry right. is weird. So, so if, if your theology is just so sort of mundane and, and easily packaged, that might be an indication that you're not quite doing it right. Not to say that we should just delve into weirdness and mysticism and just be in this percept, uh, per, um persistent state of, uh, of confusion and call it, uh, call it depth or something like that, but we should expect some of this and, and to, um, to just be a little bit comfortable with it. So anyway, to, to your question, father, son, um, yeah. the Bible, Bible presents us with, with that terminology, you know, Jesus talks about God as my father. And in John five, they say to Jesus, you keep talking about God as my father, not as our father, our father that's a nice way of talking. That's a religious way of talking. We can deal with that. You're not talking that way. You're saying my father, as if you are uniquely related to him in a peculiar way that's only right for you. In John 5, they say you're making yourself out to be equal with God. They picked up on his meaning when he said, God is not, I'm not speaking of God, our father. I'm talking about my father. You imagine I'm not in the room and a bunch of people are bad-mouthing me or acting like they know me when they don't. And my son walks into the room and he hears misconceptions about me, slander about me. People right. are making all sorts of statements about me. And right. he, he might get just incensed by this and say, hey, everybody stop. Everybody stop. You don't know what you're saying. Okay. Who are you? Right. 
my father sent me. He's my father. I know him. You don't know him. So just listen for a second, right? Uh, that's yeah. what Jesus is doing. And then pick and up John all. five and John five. Yeah, and John five in particular is one of the key places, but in many places. And um, yeah, he talks both ways. I mean, there, there, there's other, you know, the the famous Lord's Prayer, right? Our, our Father in heaven, yeah. hallowed yeah. be Thy name. Thy Absolutely. kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's in Matthew six, I believe, right? Yeah. There's a there's a version of it in Luke. It's shorter. It's not in Mark. Mark is the earliest. But from a historical perspective, you're looking at these historical documents, right? Right. And you're you're saying there is a tradition and it's legit. It's in the gospels. Mm-hmm. It, John's later, but it's still legit. He was an apostle. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was there. And you're saying there's also this way that Jesus talks as if it's yes, our father, but it's now there's something else also there. There's a deeper dimension and it is reflected in his language of my father, right? Absolutely. Um, Okay. And when, and when he teaches, so the apostles would, the apostles would unpack this even more. When he teaches to address God, as you mentioned in the Lord's Prayer, as our Father, we have the right to call God our Father in that that claim is embedded in Jesus's primary claim that he is my Father. Mm -hmm. And so there's a very important phrase all throughout the New Testament. It's called being in Christ. That little preposition in, we can think of it as being in jesus and it uses that bodily language yeah but but not like positionally bodily language but being in him in the in the larger sense being in his sonship in his unique um even genetic kind of relationship to the father um Mm. and so we, we are in that and so in that we have boldness we can address god as our father not just because of my own benevolence, not just because, hey, I'm a good guy. God, I love you and you love me. You've adopted me as your son. It's not on my own two feet that I call God my father, but only in Jesus Christ, derivative of his right, his right. Nobody gave him the right to call God his father. Like, I don't give my son, Nathaniel, the right to call me father. He has that right by birth. If I say to him, don't call me your father, I disown you, um, I'm doing something wrong. I never have the right to take, he can call me his father. He, he has that by birth. I don't give that to him. And so that's the New Testament idea that Jesus Christ derives uh, his very nature from the father himself. So in John 1, John calls Jesus not just the son of God, which he certainly calls him the son of God, but also the radiance of the father. So the New Testament gives us this other analogy, very important analogy for the Trinity. So think about the Father, like the Son, speaking of the star, at the center of our solar system. Do you ever have the Son without the sunlight? No, of course. As long as the Son is there, so there's sunlight. Do you ever have sunlight without the Son? No, of course not. As, as, as long as there's sunlight, it's coming from the Sun. They always go together. And they are intrinsically integral to one another. In fact, if we were to get into a, like an impervious spaceship that could fly into the sun without burning up, we would come to some fuzzy boundary where we don't know whether we're in the sun or we're in the sunlight. And this fuzzy boundary where they overlap. 
In Trinitarian theology, that's how we think of the Father and the Son. We think of the Son as deriving from, being begotten of the Father, coming from the Father, but not being separate and being from the Father. So that's why the fullness of deity dwells in him, him in bodily form. My son, Nathaniel, is fully human. Why is he fully 100? He's just as human as me. He's not less human than me. He's fully human because he's begotten of humans. So Jesus Christ is fully divine because he's begotten of the Father. Now, the difference between Nathaniel's begetting and Jesus Christ's eternal begetting is that with Nathaniel's begetting, it involves my wife, of course. It involves a moment of conception, and he begins to exist. When egg and sperm come together in the womb, now the human exists, and the clock starts ticking. There is no divine mother, remember, because there cannot be a species of gods that are maximally great. If there's, there can only be one or none, there cannot be more than one. And so God does not consort with anyone, doesn't conceive with anyone. There's no divine egg and sperm to be broken off from his impartable being. He's, he's not made of parts. And so when he donates his genetics, he doesn't donate part of his genetics. He donates everything that he is. So the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. So we imagine that the son is coming forth from the divine womb, just like human children do. But when does that happen? Not in a moment, not, a, not on a birthday, but eternally. So he's eternally begotten of the Father, eternally coming forth. And so God the Father is distinct from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is sent, but he carries with him the fullness of the divine genetics. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, his disciples say, okay, you tell us all this stuff about God. We're willing to believe you if you just show us God. And he says to them in that moment, do you not understand? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I am in the Father, where do I come from? From the genetics, from the very bosom of the Father, the womb of the Father, I derive from the Father, but yet I contain the fullness of the Father. The Father is in me. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And so um, the, the Son analogy, which the Bible presents, and early Trinitarians really develop, is the, is the analogy that the star and its radiance, and then we might add its heat, its felt kind of experienced on the earth, we feel the heat. So the felt sort of experienced um, part of God, we might say, is, is the Holy Spirit. And so you have the, the sun radiating out light and heat, and so the Father radiates forth the sun and the spirit into the world without parting himself, without dividing himself. The analogy isn't perfect because the sunlight is a degraded version of the light of the center of the sun. The heat that we feel on the earth is certainly a degraded version. We don't feel the full light and heat of the sun on the earth. We would be incinerated. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are not degraded gods with a lowercase g. They're fully God. So the analogy helps us a little bit, but we just have to keep in mind that Jesus isn't uh, like a titan, like Hercules, like half God. Yes, yes. I, I really, uh, I, I hesitated to say anything because you were just on this ro ro roll here. I, I think you covered, I was about to ask you about the Holy Spirit. And, and then you said the Holy Spirit was a radi, was this, did, did you say it this way? The radiation of the sun from the father in the world. Does that yeah, sound right? In the, in the analogy, something like the radiation, just using the analogy. Well, it's all it's analogy all the way down because the son and the father is an analogy. It's not also not perfect. Right. You know, really, a lot of folks need to think a little bit more carefully about analogies per se.
Yeah. Uh, when you t- when you study logic, uh, introduction to logic usually has informal fallacies. <clears throat> One is weak analogy. And so I go into this a bit about analogies, the, the nature of an analogy. We always say it's not a perfect analogy, as if there is such a thing as a perfect analogy. It's kind of like when people say too many people are dying from crack. Uh, you know, it's like, well, what's the perfect number? Like, <laughs> right, right. you know, is it the perfect number zero? <laughs> <laughs> but it's just way the way we talk is just weird sometimes. Um, sure. So uh, the analogy of the father's son. What would you say to someone? Well, is there anything you wanted to add about the Holy Spirit? There, did I did I say it wrong? No, no. You, I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so spend time on analogies. That I mean, I would say to people like that's a door over here. You can come back to that. We really do need to think about what analogies are because it. They're really critical for our being able to think about things. But, um, okay, so it's revealed to us by God in the Bible in this analogy. So, in other words, is that a reason to say it's not a perfect analogy? Obviously, that's almost redundant to say that. But God himself is saying this is the best analogy you're going to get. If you try to understand it any other way, it's going to be somehow defective. Would you say that's fair? Yeah. Um, because I, 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 maybe a woman is listening to this and they're, they're thinking, she's thinking, uh, let me get my pronouns right. Um, she might be thinking that this is two men here talking and they just are, they're obviously because they're men, they don't, they don't understand how it makes women feel when. Christianity is presented as father, son, and then this like gender neutral Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. What in the world am I supposed to do with that? Now, a lot of women go along with it. And but a lot of women seem bothered by it. So yeah. what what can you say about someone who might have that concern that we're just missing something because we're men? Yeah. That there's really something, there's a deeper weirdness that's not healthy. And yeah. we're missing it because we just can't see it standpoint epistemology where we're missing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose there's a couple things. So in, in creation, as we find in the opening chapters of Genesis, um, we see that the male and the female were created in the image of God. The single image of God is reflected in this binary way in the male and the female. Um, that's, importantly embedded in creation so it seems to me that and you know all about this stuff and the, and the politics of this stuff the sort of um very gender fluid contemporary perspective that there's more than two genders and genders can change and all of that biblically for biblical christians um that's very hard for us to make sense of it's it's embedded in, in creation uh, notice that race is not embedded in creation. I don't mean to go on a tangent, but I just do mean to say. I'm very glad you said that. That's perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Gen- I, genders there, but not race. But not race. So we can't make this analogy to say, oh, um, you, you don't mind if uh, it, it, in, in, in American politics, we all know this, we have these terms called black and white, which uh, involve not just African and European history, but a whole or African right. or European um, ethnicity, but a whole sort of history that goes with it. And so, and we say, uh, well, you don't mind a black person or a white person getting married, but two men getting married, all of a sudden, you're all up in arms over that. Well, there's a very fundamental uh, d- 
different way in which we view gender and 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 race in Christian theology. Uh, gender is intrinsic to the created order. Race is not. Race is uh, has to do with the migration of people groups and the accidents of history. And if people had migrated in different directions and certain certain groups had merged or separated in different ways, we would have literally have different races, but we would still have male and female, right? We still have male and female. Uh, there's no getting around that biologically or even socially. There's no getting around that. It's part of the social fabric. And both male and female right at the beginning it are equally created in the image of God. It's not like I mean, male is first temporally in the narration, right? Literarily, the male comes first. Mm-hmm. That's literature. That's the literary. It doesn't mean that that's what's most important, or it doesn't mean he's primary and right. in an unequal sense of metaphysics, right? Or the reality. Metaphysics just means the reality. That's how I'm using the term. So, male and female, if you read Genesis, one and two, um, the man comes first. God creates the man first. Then he creates the woman from the man, from the physical stuff of the man, but Which obviously so that, okay. All right. Species. How's it important? So that they're the same species. So they're the that same. They're not. Species. So, okay. so if, if the, if the woman were created equally human that, and equally in the image of God, Right, equally human of the same species. If if God had created Eve separately and distinctly, we could make the case that men and women are an in, uh, distinct interbreeding species. And if you have distinct species, now you have grounds for discrimination. So in in my home, uh, the children eat at the table, the dog eats under the table. The justification for that is that the children are human and deserve human dignity and have human rights, and so eating at the table is proper for the human. The dog, we could do it with the dog if we wanted to, but we certainly don't have to. Nobody would come in our house and think injustice if we tell the dog, get down from the table, get under the table. Everybody's okay with that. Not because we're anti-dog, but because that's appropriate and proper to dogs because there's totally different species. If they see me do that to my son and put the dog up at the table and say, get down under the table, then they say, what are you doing? Right? That's clearly um, um, flouting the dignity of my son's humanity. So it's vitally important that the man and the woman are related in that in that sense that the woman is taken from the man but then of course you have the first conception and then a man comes from the woman and so how does adam and eve's son get his humanity from the humanity of his mother and his father right and so that makes humanity united so that we're literally biologically related and no human can look at another human and say you're in any sense lesser to me or any sense that this this the, the distinct, uh, distinctive in, in, in value. Racism suggests that something like humanity is broken up into something like different species and certain things are appropriate for one species and not appropriate for another species. That's really insightful. That's really good. Uh, also, the image of God is passed down from the mother. And now... If, if you're not following this, you just go back to Genesis and read the first chapters. Right. There, there, there's textual warrant for everything we're saying here. The, the image of God is a reason for capital punishment. 
in hmm. Genesis nine after <laughs> hold on. Let me make sure I got it right. After the flood, I believe. Hold on, hold on, hold up, hold up. No, no, sorry. Yes, yes, after the flood. I was thinking of Cain and Abel in Genesis four, but Cain doesn't get the death penalty. So Cain kills Abel. These are the sons of Adam and Eve. And uh, Cain probably deserved the death penalty, but God had grace on him. Just as God had grace on Adam and Eve, he said, in this day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. The word is yom there. On that day, you could say, but they didn't die that day. Something else did. So God had grace on them and he had grace on Cain. Then fast forward, there's a big flood. And at the end of the flood, there is this warrant for the death penalty. And it says specifically in there that it's because of the image of God. So in other words, what you're saying is the, the mother is also passing not only the humanity, but what, I guess what that means is the humanity carries with it the image of God. So that's right. for men and women. Exactly. Anybody the, the, that's human. Okay. The full, uh, when we speak of human rights and human dignity and all of these things that we so value in ethics and politics and we should value, uh, ultimately, I think the only good justification, I, I'm familiar with some secular justifications of the notion of human rights and human value and things. I, I, don't, I don't think they wash. I think ultimately it's got to be rooted in something like what you say, the image of God. We are bearers of the image of God. Women don't have it in a secondary sense. They don't have it in a lesser sense. Men don't have it in a secondary or lesser sense. If you're a radical feminist, you might think so. Not, uh, not so. Um, nobody of any particular ethnicity or, or cultural group has it in a, in a secondary sense. Mm. By birth, by nature, we have it in the same sense. And so women um, culturally can become second-class citizens, even in the church. Sure. That's, a, that's a cultural mistake. That's a cultural mistake. That's mistreatment. It is, it is mistreatment. We might call it sexism. As I see it, um, the gospel doesn't leave any room for that. That doesn't mean that, um, you know, radical feminist expressions of how to counteract and correct sexism are, are, are themselves right. Um, but in any case, in the, in the, in the biblical view, uh, women are in no uh, way secondary. And so uh, we see this um, in, in creation, that the man and the woman are both together created in the divine image. And what that indicates is that God, of course, is not biologically male. Although we have the term father, and I use the term father, I don't call God mother. Some theologians say we should do that. I don't think so. Um, the Bible doesn't present that, but I don't in any sense think that God is biologically male. I mean, think about, again, the terminology of John chapter one, the son comes from the bosom of the father. I have no qualms. The Bible doesn't say this, but I actually have no problem with saying what I said before. We might, by analogy, say that the son came from the womb of the father. Now, of course, fathers don't have wombs. Yeah. And so uh, the son. What, comes what, from if, what, if the, what if they say a divine parent? Because I hear people talking like that. I think that there's value. And, and I guess I could think more about this, but the biblical language is father. And if parent were just as appropriate or just as useful, maybe maybe the Bible would say parent. I'm not saying that that's wrong or bad or uh, I wouldn't right, right. comment anybody over that. But um, no, no. But I see I see what you're saying. I mean, there's there's a there are. I think there are just a, a just a few. I don't know how many exactly, but not very many 
female metaphors for for God, like when in Matthew and Jesus is crying over Jerusalem and he says, Oh, I have longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. And that's a female. That's but 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 it's not very often. But it doesn't mean that Jesus is saying I I'm fem uh, I'm a, a woman or I'm the God is a mother exactly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's tricky. It, it's hard to know exactly where to draw the line. I guess. Yeah, and, and you know, and, you know, we've got this father son, and we might think, oh, male male. Of course, it's, yeah, yeah. The, the Bible doesn't present it as male male. Um, the divine father is divine father. We do use the, the pronouns he biblically. It, it, it does use the masculine. It even uses, I mean, for the Holy Spirit, Jesus doesn't say tapanumahagyas, which would be grammatically correct using the neuter article. He says hapanumahagyas. He uses the max, masculine article. So he actually uses he in reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, it would be right in Greek to say it because pneuma. Uh, or spirit is uh, is is neuter, neither masculine nor feminine. Right. And so, I mean, that makes it even worse. So, so biblically, you you have he he and he. Um, so I can understand feminists feeling, uh, especially culturally speaking, as the church has had bad, uh, maybe even patriarchal, abusive expressions. It, I, it's happened. Um, yeah. And feel as if the Christian language itself sanctions that. I don't think that that's true. Consider this. Yes. All of Christians are considered the bride of Christ. I don't know if that makes you feel uncomfortable. It does. Right. And, and, and I felt well, that way. Especially when, I, when you're, you know, Paul talks about being in Christ. Right. It's a, it's a little odd. I mean, it's, it's obviously not sexual. Um, that would not make sense for the bride of Christ anyway, if, you, if you're paying attention to basic anatomy. But yes, the bride of Christ is odd. And... I've, I've felt that way a lot, but, and we're supposed to be married to Christ, you know, but right. so, so I mean, but that's just an analogy. It's not, it's not, there's a lot of analogies. There's a lot of analogies in scripture. Exactly. And it's, and it's touching on, I mean, in the marital union, two people who are dedicated to each other yes. relationally, spiritually, emotionally, they express that relation with the deepest physical intimacy in sex that, you know, it's not possible for any two humans to get uh, more deeply physically intimate it's a reflection of of the deep emotional social relational um union that's happening that's why we shouldn't do it indiscriminately or promiscuously because you're really breaking yourself off into pieces and 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 emptying yourself the very last chapter of the bible revelation 21 wait is there is it 22 or 21 that I think it's okay. So the second to the last chapter is revelation 21 new, new heavens and new earth. The new Jerusalem is presented as a beautiful bride. So yeah. the polity, the new polity, the new polis is magnificently dressed, beautiful, lovely bride. Yeah, and it's just wonderful. Now it's uh, so okay. There's all these analogies, and and if you study theology, this is what you study. You you study this history and philosophy and the biblical text. It's great. I love what you said about race. Going back to that, the reason we're talking about this because you, I didn't even have to set you up for this. You just went right there. Is human rights 
So if it, people, they're wondering, what does this have to do with, with politics? What does it have to do with American politics? This is the view of human rights that Abraham Lincoln had. When he looked at black people, he saw humans made in the image of God. And this is, you know, he wasn't like a biblical scholar or anything, but he was self-taught reading the Bible, reading Euclid and Shakespeare. That was the guy that ended slavery. That was his training. That was his college. That was his high school. Logic, the Bible, and literature. And so this is a tremendously relevant to um, the proper way, I think, to think about rights. And you, you nailed it exactly about race and species and gender. And so it's all relevant. And we're barely scratching the surface, I think, but we've done a pretty good job of laying uh, stuff out. Would you say that um, um, I, I, well, if you screw up the nature of rights and the nature of the human person, it's going to have disastrous consequences. And the, the, really horrible places on earth they always screw that up it's mm -hmm. not an accident yeah i think that's absolutely true um i think sometimes of you know we we're talking about india um which mm -hmm. is not a country i grew up in and i and i know it um, a bit as an outsider though i've been there many times and i have family there mm -hmm. south asia in general um you know is is a place as people are probably aware of great disparity, great disparity. Yes. There are people who are absorbently rich and uh, considered even valuable. And then there are people at the very lowest level of a social structure. In Hinduism, they're called untouchables, who can't rise above any station other than cleaning toilets and that sort of work. Can't marry outside of that. And uh, there's, a, there's a very strict hierarchy. Um, that's rooted in Hindu theology and in the in the Hindu view of um, uh, well that you know Hindu view of uh, different levels of of human worth and value and you sort of work it out in this life and then return in the next life and hopefully it's at a higher station. Mm. Uh, but but you stay within that structure. We don't break away from that structure because it's what the universe demands. It's what God demands, and um, it sanctions. And I've seen it. Yeah. I've seen it in India. It sanctions the mistreatment of the people at the lowest level as if they are really a different species. Like mm. you eat, you eat under the table because you're a dog. I and my children will eat at the table. If we start, if we do that with dogs, we're fine. If we do that with other humans, now we've done something fundamentally wrong. So mm. I would say one reason that I could never be a, a Hindu um, is it would be something like that. It, it mm. would, from what I understand, even if I weren't a Christian, the gospel has so transformed the understanding of human value and dignity in the world that even secular people have this notion that humans are intrinsically valuable, intrinsically worthy, cannot be used and abused. You cannot have a hierarchy. We do it anyway. Of course, we do it in all sorts of ways. Yeah. But in theory, we know that it's wrong. And that is very much, that very much derives from the teachings of the early church. That is not the way that just thoughtful 
people think. I mean, the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, no. these, were, these were major movements in human history that were very constructive, did a lot of culturally wonderful, incredible things. They did not have that notion of human rights. There no. was certainly a hierarchy. That's right. Um, and, it, and, and I take it that it's the teaching of the early church that trained, that changed the whole world's thinking about this stuff. I, and I, that's totally right. I think, um, of course you can get into the weeds on the details and history and stuff like that, but I like to go back to just reminding folks that your problems, there, there's a tendency to, uh, I think overthink the mistreatment problem. And uh, t- we talk about race and gender, and those are really sexy topics. Sexual orientation recently. Now it's that that's even passe. Now it's like gender identity. <laughs> so it, it's, t- it's tough to keep up with uh, what the kids are doing these days. But um, when Cain killed Abel, it's not because Abel was a different race. The first kinds of mistreatment the what mistreatment really is is pretty basic and what rights really are pretty basic you have a right not to be murdered you have a right not to be stolen from there's no reference to race at all you have a right not to be kidnapped that's in exodus 21 one chapter after the 10 commandments that right there condemns the african slave trade in america you have a right to um, faithfulness of your spouse. You have a right to um, rest regularly. It's it's kind of strange to 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 think of this, but but I I love the way the Bible does it. It doesn't complicate it by some kind of weird uh, obsession of race or 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 gender. It's, you know, and, and people are constantly finding ways to mistreat other people. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And it happens um, in many different societies in different ways, but at basic root level, take, take, for example, the Soviet Union. You never think of, people never talk about the Soviet Union as like white supremacy or whatever, but, but the Soviet Union was fairly monolithically i think what most people would say white i think fairly but there was tremendous inequality and mistreatment of people and tremendous suffering and i think it's because they they were uh, there there was a at root level like you were saying about hindu theology in, in india uh a, a mistaken understanding of what people are and our purpose on, on earth. But even when you have it right, like, like we have it, the declaration of independence is, is wonderful and, and great, tremendously flawed people trying to execute this thing, but that's just the way it is. I mean, it's always been that way. For sure. Cain kills Abel right away. It's amazing. So So is there anything else you wanted to add about that? Oh, well, you know, tell us where you teach. What, what kind of classes do you teach? 
What do you oh, enjoy? Yeah. What do you enjoy teaching? What's your favorite class? Yeah. What are your, what teach, are your students like? I teach at Moody Bible Institute, uh, downtown Chicago. So I've heard of that. Place, <laughs> wonderful place to teach. It's famous. You know, ha- very famous. Yeah. Uh, Chicago is, it's a great city. It's a beautiful city. Uh, it's, you know, it has a reputation for being you know, freezing cold and being in Southern California. I didn't know cold until I moved here. So yeah, <laughs> rough, roughly half of the year is pretty uncomfortably cold, but the, the other half is, is wonderful. And, um, and the school is in a beautiful setting, downtown Chicago. I teach um, regularly. I have an intro to philosophy class. Uh, we don't have a philosophy major, but we do intro philosophy for all of our ministry majors. That's good. Um, I do a, an apologetics course where I, um, it's very much an introductory course, but in hopefully in their curriculum, they've gotten a lot of historical and even a little bit of scientific kind of um, um development in their theological thinking and i kind of try to bring that together i I do that for seniors philosophy comes early on for sophomores um and then in addition to that i I have a uh, an elective on trinitarian theology that i've done every year so i'm going to do it again uh this fall really looking forward to it and um we have a brand new class i'm also looking forward to in the fall Uh, it's a course that we call biblical ethics and so it's an ethics course so that has to do with the philosophy of right and wrong everything we've been talking about, human rights and those sorts of questions of what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. Of course, that's all ethics, as people know. And we've tagged it biblical ethics. Because what we want to do is we really want to do that integrative work of bringing together the study of ethics with a biblical perspective. So it won't necessarily be going through all of the chapters of, uh, of Leviticus and talking about all of the sort of moral laws uh, in a, you know, uh, as distinguished from certain ritualistic laws or something. There'll be a little bit of that. But it's not, um, it's an ethics course, but it's hopefully deeply integrated with, with the biblical perspective on things. So some of these things will come up. Uh, why do Christians say that, what justification do we have for saying that people of all tribes, you know, the, as you said, the Bible doesn't even have the word race, but it has some similar words like nation, tribe, tongue. Some Eth- of them are eth- ethnicity, yeah. Ethnos, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and so, and that word doesn't exactly mean ethnicity as we mean it today. That word is transformed a little bit used in different contexts, but it's got similar words. And so, we'll right. talk about those sorts of things. What does the Bible have to say? How should we think about it in our context? Not just the American context, because as I mentioned, we've got this sort of black-white distinction. And you asked about my students. Many of my students, um, a lot of East Asian students. And so they come from a very different context. A lot of South Korean students, uh, more and more um, uh, uh, Chinese students are coming to Moody. And because the church is growing so rapidly in East Asia, some uh, trickling of South Asian students, I would love to see more. Uh, some African students, I'd love to see more in the post 9-11 and now post-COVID world. It's, you know, it's harder. Hold, to- hold on one sec. Let me pause. You were talking about your students more, more students from China. I think yeah, more students East, East Asia. And, and I, I'd, I'd love to see more students from, uh, uh, other places, um, underrepresented places. Europe as well now is becoming underrepresented. Anyway, that is all to say, uh, without getting on a tangent, when we talk about certain things in ethics and certain very right. culturally important things, like, you know, black and white, Black and white in right, a right. racial sense, as we have it in the United States, is a very peculiar <laughs> thing that has to do with um, 
has to do with North, North American history. Mm-hmm. Um, black and white have maybe similar meanings, but not the same meaning as they would in Brazil. They have similar, but not the same meanings that they would in Nigeria. Um, they don't have the same meanings or even relevance in South Korea. And we have many South Korean students. And so as I'm teaching ethics, you know, one thing that I'm really excited about is, uh, is talking about these, like you were doing, talking about it in a more universal sense, using scripture, not just as a tool, but using, you know, getting into scripture to understand things more correctly about how we divide humanity, how we mistreat each other, how we um, find all sorts of new ploys to privilege some and, um, and, and, and to uh, disenfranchise others, uh, and we do it. And so the black-white distinction in American history and the way that it's been used going back to the slave trade was one ploy in a whole history of human ploys. It's, I mean, that, and that is not to dismiss it or to say that it doesn't have effects today not or at to all. say that people are not deeply, um, that is not a deeply important question today. You know, the American experience of, you know, black and white is very, it's, as I said, it's very peculiar on one hand, but it is somewhat well known around the world. I mean, after the killing of George Floyd, there were protests in Denmark, right? I mean, that tells you something about how America has exported its culture and even its problems. So when I'm speaking with Korean students about some of these things, you know, I want to keep in mind, well, how is this relevant to many East Asian students? How is this relevant to me? I'm neither black nor white. So I'm, that often feel I'm politically unimportant. If you're white, you're politically important in America. If you're black, we know where you are, you're politically important. And if you're something else, what do we do with you? Some people feel that way. And so, uh, you know, I want to address those issues from a biblical yeah. perspective. So you're saying the Bible has rich resources for ethics. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> those, cor- those courses sound awesome. Um, which one do you enjoy teaching the most? Um. Right now, I've got three sections of intro to philosophy, and my head is really in there and just teaching the history. What's your, what's of, your load? I should ask that. What's your teaching load? Uh, usually four four courses, three hours each. That's that's a basic load. I um I, anything I, on the summer? What do you do in the summer? It's on and off. If I have the time, I like to teach because um, I like to teach summer classes because they're intensives. We get everything done in two weeks. And I like to do it intensively because it helps me practice just telling one clear, clear story from beginning to end. Whereas in a 16 week semester, you've got it broken up across the weeks and then you have things like spring break and other things. It gets all hodgepodge. broken. I like to just tell one clean story and just sort of revamp the way I'm doing yeah. it. So, um, William Lane Craig, did you ever take one? You took William Lane Craig's uh, yeah. J term courses. I took every course I could with him. Yeah. Jay, so you must have used, you must have had to use uh, vacation time for that. I did. I did. I, there were sometimes I'd just take a two week vacation and never took my family. Uh, anything nice. Uh, I spent it. Yeah. With Bill Craig. Mm-hmm. Your wife must be just tremendously a true believer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very, very supportive. Wow. And, I mean, to to try to explain that, like, you don't understand. It's William Lane Craig. Right. The guy's a double PhD, one in German and another in British. And I don't even speak British. Right. And um, yeah, so those were intense, right? Remember those? Like every day. 
and he yep. would just lecture mm-hmm. non-stop and then yep. there was a big exam at the end <laughs> blue yeah, book he, no no was there a study guide i can't remember no was, no 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 study guide what are you talking about with a study guide yeah no we just we just have a small stack of books very very european sometimes he would throw at us um also a small stack of articles and a ton of reading for him and uh and then it all came to the end and we would have how many hours of lecture every day it was three hours right every day yeah my, yeah yeah pr- about you know there i might have had some that had more i can't remember actually but but yeah um yeah those were those were intense well everything is either indoors outside or intense that's a good point I said I did that uh, little thing to uh, in one of my classes in this one kid. I think it was like I had a 13 year old in my class one time in college. I think that the 13 year old said, what about the ocean? What about underwater? Was that outside? I was like, oh, man, I don't I don't think I've ever thought about whether underwater is outside. I guess I guess it is Yeah, under under the ocean is outside, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't anyway. have an ocean house. So, yeah. The person's going to be a good philosopher making these yeah. distinctions. Yeah. So you got a four, four load. Um, how long have you been at Moody? Uh, this will be my, uh, this fall will be my 10th year. Oh, wow. It's been 10 years already. Yeah. It seems like last year you'd only been there nine years. Seems like, yeah, <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to keep up here. Okay. All right. All right. right, right. I guess that makes sense now. Um, are you enjoying Illinois? Do you like the seasons? Um, spring's, yeah, com- spring's coming up. It's going to be awesome. I, yeah, it's, it, it is awesome. And uh, I do, as I said, Chicago is a great city. Uh, I don't know it as well as I, I'd like. I'm sort of in and out all the time. Um, but hmm. I um, want to go there just for the pizza at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chicagoans are very serious about their pizza. So, Is it um, a clean city? Uh, it's, I think so. I think so. I've, I've seen New York's garbage problems and things like that. And I've seen the homeless issues in, in LA and Chicago is nothing like that. Um, South side, people probably know the South side of Chicago. You've heard of that. It's, it's not a place I get to much. Uh, so I know it from the news as maybe a lot of people do, but it's, it's really horrific with the gang violence and, um, things that are going on there and it's a place where apparently life is considered pretty cheap um it's an unfortunate persistent american urban problem but um but the but the city that i go to um it is a beautiful city right you know right on the lake rivers beautiful buildings really interesting place And, and i do yeah of course i do enjoy that i love moody bible institute students are incredible encouraging um, thoughtful, energetic young people who want to do Christian ministry. And so I just, I get along with them very well. I think and hope they like me too. So yeah, I like all of it. You have an interesting name, Sanjay Merchant. Yeah. What, what's the, what's the story behind that name? Uh, my, uh, my father wanted me to have an Indian name even though I wasn't being raised in, in India, and even though I'm not ethnically full Indian, but 
Sanjay um, is Sanjay a common Indian name? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It like is. John, would it be John or Mark or something? Yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah. Maybe the most famous would be uh, Sanjay Gupta, you know, the, the guy that's, I think he's on CNN and he's a sort of medical authority. Um, so, yeah. And then the, the name Merchant was a mix up, I believe. I think this is the right story. I've heard this from my father that it was a mix up where my great grandfather didn't know on a census if he was being asked for his surname or his occupation. And so, merchant came of course you know the english word for what he what his business was yes oh that's cool it's a cool name i like it i think it rolls off the tongue well um okay. yeah i've never so, much cared for it. <laughs> what i've never much cared for my name really yeah that's very nice of you to say uh, well yeah, it's no. just true yeah oh yeah I've always yeah. liked your name. Ever since you told me what your name was, I was like, oh, that's a cool name. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's really nice here. I, I think it's a little bit, I don't know, a little bit prissy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you mentioned it just a little while ago that in terms of race, uh, did you have a race consciousness in Orange County growing up? Did you feel, um, well, I guess I just ask you, how did you feel? <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to give you the categories. Did you feel well, this or this? No, as far as I know, I, I never really did. Um, there were a few occasions where people expressed to me that they did see me as distinct in those ways. So where I grew up, South Orange County, largely white community. And I didn't see myself as white or non-white. You know, as you're a kid, you don't really think about that so much. It's imposed on you a little bit. Um, so if somebody were to ask me, are you white or non-white, I wouldn't have even known. Um, so there's there's other what we would call minorities in this country. And uh, the, the major uh, minority in where I grew up would be like the East, East Asian, which would be considered is a white or non-white. You know, America doesn't really know, but probably non-white. Anyway, uh, I didn't have much of a race consciousness. It wasn't until, you know, people sort of put that on me. And there were a couple minor things like um, people would ask me things like, where were you born? And I would say, well, Indiana, as I mentioned to you, my, my father met my mother in Fort Wayne, Indiana, when he was in grad school. And I had a teacher once say to me, no, 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 it's not in fifth grade. She said to me, no, 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 you weren't born in Indiana. You were born in India. <laughs> like I didn't know. Uh, and she was like, no, 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 it's not Indiana. It's India. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, I, I, well, the, uh, Miss so-and-so, uh, tell me more about my, uh, my family. I, I, I missed, right. where, where have you been in the family reunions? Yeah. So there's a little bit of that. Tell, where tell me about are, my grandfather. <laughs> yeah. Where people are like, no, 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 you're, you, you're not from here, but it's, your mom's I, not I, Italian. No. Right. I never considered it uh, a significant thing at all. Or sometimes people, when I was a kid, They'd say, um, they say, where are you from? That's what they would say. They'd say, where are you from? And I would say, um, I'm from here. I'm from here. It's like a mission game. No, no, no. Where, where are you from? And then they would really emphasize the word from. I'd say, well, I was born in Indiana. They said, no, no, no. Where are you from? And I, you know, I would be 10 years old and I would think, are you so inarticulate that you don't know the word ethnicity? If you want to ask me that, ask me that. But just 
saying from longer, I'm not going to play your game until you learn a, a better vocabulary. But the, but the, <laughs> I always felt like the, uh, the insinuation was, of course, you're tolerated. Of course, of course, but you're not really from here. You're not, you're not like us. That happened a little bit. But again, I, I don't care for getting on the bandwagon and making that the big issue of my life and acting like, oh, I was treated in these ways. For the vast, vast majority of my life, it's had no significant impact on me at all. And I never think of it. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, that's so funny <laughs> to hear that story. <laughs> yeah that it's it's also cool that you you looked at it like an english issue like that that's the funniest part about that story to me is you're just like the resources of the english language are there (laughs) and um you should avail yourselves of them at some point uh grow it's just wonderful you you can it's amazing what you can accomplish with just a dictionary yeah, and as philosophers, I mean, don't we encourage our students all the time? The development of your facility with language uh, <clears throat> goes hand in hand with your the development of your thinking. Mm, and that's you, a huge, people, huge point you just made. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it's not about being snooty and using big words. No, no, I hate being characterized that way. I hate, you know, if I give a sermon at church, and and I try not to do this. I, I've learned a lot about speaking and teaching in church and bringing things down to a very understandable common level it's not about showing off or speaking over people's heads but sometimes if you want to get to deeper issues you have to introduce a vocabulary that can carry those ideas mm-hmm. a sort of basic you know um teenage level vocabulary just cannot carry deeper ideas mm-hmm. and you might struggle with them but you just don't know how to handle them you don't know what to do with them so anyway it's very important yeah, absolutely. I, 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 and I, and there is a, a there's a, an attention span issue. Um, do you run into the attention span issue when, with your students with social media and all that, do they expect like an Instagram picture of the Trinity? I mean, how do you even do that? There's definitely a little bit of it. I see the weariness in them sometimes. I see, see their eyes kind of glaze. Um, mm-hmm. Happily, my, my classes are only 50 minutes long and I, I fill up the whole class. That's a shocker. I, I try to make it conversational um, as best I can, but in some cases I just, okay, just need to explain this for you. And they're very, they're very, very good. But sometimes I see the glossiness and then all the students come to me and say, I'm really trying, and I thought they were doing great. They asked a question, I thought it was a good question. They'll say, I'm really trying to follow along, but I'm a little bit lost and in all honesty, I, I'm not getting what you're saying about this. And can we talk more? And so that happens, but there probably is something of an attention span issue, but, uh, but they're pretty well trained. They can sit through a 50 minute class. Do you feel pressure to inflate grades? No. Well, that's good. Uh, no, we've, we've never been given that sort of. You give everybody pressure. an A? <laughs> I, I'm a little uh, bit, I was going to say, there could be two possibilities. You already inflate grades with no right. pressure. I mean, it's all internal. I do it freely. Or uh, you, you don't inflate grades and the institution never thought about even the concept. So I don't, I just don't know the culture. At no, I, I have actually been um, very kindly. There was a warning. There's no warning, but a, a discussion uh, with uh, one time. And the discussion was, 
hey, do you want to think more about being discriminating in your grades? Your grades seem a bit high, just comparing to some other courses. And my first thought was, well, I'm doing a great job of teaching and they're all getting it. So, <laughs> but, but it was a good, helpful conversation that I went, oh, wow, now that you show me this, maybe I could be, I could, uh, I could introduce a little bit more rigor here and here. And so I tend towards, yeah. I tend of course, you can't give yourself credit if they work hard. That, that doesn't <laughs> yeah. follow. I'm a good professor because they work so hard. Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually trying to, my students hate to hear this, but I'll tell them, I'm actually trying to find ways to introduce some more rigor coming at it from different angles. And um, yeah, students are dealing with a lot right now. Um, I've noticed a change now in through COVID and that I hope now we're considered sort of post-COVID era, I don't know. But I've noticed that issues of, at least they're telling me, issues of mental health, family emergencies, of, uh, of just a sort of crisis of, um, uh, of their social environments and their economic uh, arrangements and all of this is just so much more pronounced now. So I'm trying to be both understanding and helpful with those issues but also finding a way to keep serious standards up because there are some people and it's hard sometimes it's hard and i just don't have the time to figure out who's telling me the god's honest truth and who is melting it it's hard to tell i can't always tell so i treat them all the same if you come in and you tell me something and you say this is my situation i take it as the god's honest truth and my only intention is to help you but I don't want to enable those. And so I've tried to find some standards to say, okay, you're going through some serious issues. You've had to you know, go to the hospital a few times, but you want to finish the semester. I want to help you, but I can't just let everything go. It's a tough position to be so in. So I'll try to hold some standards. Yeah, that's a tough position to be in. I don't know what it's like to to teach through this last couple of years what was that like for you did you guys um, shut did you shut down we did for one semester <clears throat> um then we was we, that by order by government order or did, was that what, voluntary okay no it wasn't voluntary um <clears throat> moody definitely it, it, you know it's christian institution and christian institutions they want in general i think they want to um do everything in a cooperative legal way, but aren't so beholden to um, to certain legalistic perspectives on what we should and shouldn't do. I, I guess that would be a way of saying it. So some Christian institutions have pushed back a little bit and more or less, I think, in reasonable ways, I think. Uh, Moody, you know, Chicago is a very blue place. And so... Um, you know, was always talk about shutting us down again and things. And so, you know, Moody definitely tried to keep infection rates low, did the testing and all of that stuff. And we just want to, we don't want to fight every fight, just continue on with uh, providing education. So it was always kind of dicey because Chicago could shut us down and Chicago is just its own kind of beast. So I hated teaching, honestly, through the mask. I hate not seeing the students' faces. It just really hinders, I, I think, the teaching and learning environment. And uh, uh, we're just coming through that just until uh, a few days ago, actually, all my students were wearing masks because Chicago required it. It's finally lifted. 
So, and I don't know the reasons. I don't know why now, not before. I, I can tell you the reason. The reason is because a few days ago you were in mortal danger. And then, you know, you're just not in danger anymore all of a sudden. I, I think it's something. It feels like that. It feels like that's the case. And and, yeah. and and the bureaucrats know this. They're like, okay, on Tuesday, there's not going to be mortal danger. Right. But now. Right. Right. And, and I've experienced this. I mean. Is there a they, vaccine they, mandate at the school? Um, there's a vaccine mandate through Chicago for schools. They, they, they just lifted this too, but there was for schools, for visiting restaurants, for any sort of indoor activities, you had to show a vaccine card. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty wow. strict. It was vaccine mandate. Our school um, had a sizable minority. I'm thinking 30, 40% um, that got a religious exemption from it. So many people were happy to get their, their vaccination. Uh, there wasn't too much of a... It, I think it wasn't that polarizing at Moody. The people who wanted to do it, did it. People who didn't want to, didn't. And we just sort of left it at that. And people felt free to say they did or they didn't. And I don't think it was too judgmental. I might be wrong about that. But I think I think all in all, our community handled it pretty well. But yeah, there was a vaccine mandate. Um, I'm, I don't know anything about, I mean, I honestly don't know anything about the science or anything. I didn't get vaccinated. And I'm happy to tell anybody that. Um, because Can you wear, would you mind wearing a mask for the rest of the interview? Just, I, I didn't, I did not know this, everybody. I did not know that he was not vaccinated before we started talking, and you've been without a mask. I Sorry love looking that. at your, I love looking at your mud shot, but just, just for the remainder of this interview. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So you didn't get vaccinated. I didn't. I don't have strong opinions about it either way. I, I don't. Um, my wife does. She is very strong worries about the 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 nature of the vaccination um she's told me many things she's put a lot of mental energy into it i don't know if she's right or wrong i, I don't think she would mind me saying this but she's not trained in medicine either she's just sort of looking at this herself and has formed strong opinions i, I don't necessarily go with those i've stayed very neutral myself but the way i see it um I, i'm i'm healthy i'm healthy and uh, covid never seemed to me to be a death sentence, if it seems to you that it could be, if your immune system is compromised and you think it's the better bet for you to to um, to to get the vaccine, then do it. Um, but right, it, right. Seemed, it seemed to me, and I, I never understood the vaccine as a sort of like like uh, an act of social responsibility. I could be dead wrong, and I'm I'm happy to be dead wrong. I don't mean to make statements about things that I don't don't know anything about, but it's like you have to do your social duty, but me getting vaccinated doesn't make me less contagious. It doesn't keep me from getting uh, the disease or passing it along. Maybe it reduces the time in which I have it perhaps. And it, if it works well, it would reduce my symptoms or something like that, but it doesn't help anybody else. It's not like a social responsibility. It's purely a decision for me. And so I said, coronavirus probably isn't gonna kill me. My wife thinks that the vaccine could have bad effects. I don't know. I don't know. And so if there's a possibility, I don't know what's in the vaccine. Maybe it has bad effect. Maybe it's fine. Maybe I'm an idiot. Fine. But why get it? Why get it? I'm not killing anybody or saving anybody by getting it. I'm just helping myself. I don't really think I need it. If I get sick with coronavirus, I will stay away from people and I won't endanger anybody. And if you want me to wear a mask in your establishment, fine. You know, um, so that's kind of the way I saw it. I didn't, I just, 
I never understood why it was such the political issue that it was. Now, did you? Uh... Well, that all makes sense. I mean, you just sound like an educated person to me. Just everything you just said doesn't require any medical training at all. Oh, okay. Is that your perspective? Well, yeah, it's common sense what you just said. But that what you just said is a political position. Hmm. That's the Republican position. That's not the Democrat position. The Democrat position is this is a public health crisis. That means it's not a private decision. It's a public health decision. The, the tendency of the Democratic Party is to take the public and make it larger at the expense of the private. That's just generally what they do with economic regulations. Going back to segregation, by the way, this goes, this is pre-New Deal, pre-New Deal. I mean, of course, FDR was a big part of this in the Great Depression, and that was very popular because people were, they were afraid. They were tremendously afraid in the Great Depression. And so when there's a lot of fear like that, the government power, if you have certain leaders in there, it grows. You know, yeah. just like with World War II, there were tremendous fears about the Japanese invasion on the East Coast or on the East Coast. Let me get my geography right on the West Coast. Uh -huh. So there was a Japanese exclusion. And that was just part of the war effort. I mean, get with it. What's wrong with you? Yeah. They, they attacked us. They, this is dangerous. And that's how it's justified. And, and black people, we don't want them. That's crazy. You know, so the, the economic regulation, there was forced segregation before the new deal in Democrat areas. Well, anyway, I'm just, I'm just pointing, I, I, I see things very clearly on, I'm not saying I'm right about everything, but I'm just saying it just seems to me that I, see things that are right there i just point them out i'm like oh it's right there yeah but that, that yeah. seems to me that seems to make sense to me that the, that in american politics the democrats tend to emphasize public collective rights and prerogatives and to think about individuals as parts of collectives they don't always deny individual rights but they tend to emphasize one or the other over the other and let's say republicans tend to emphasize individual rights and prerogatives over collective rights which one is more american you know which one is more um, in tune and in step with the american way of life and and, and in step with justice uh, in general you know that's a difficult conversation um yeah and in, in this case if coronavirus were an absolute death sentence as people worried that it might be at the beginning if it were an absolute death sentence mm -hmm. and me just carrying it could result in someone else's you know it was an imminent threat to someone else's life as it was often painted and getting the vaccine would reduce that threat to others then I would very much consider the collectivist ethics on that. I wouldn't just say, well, I have my individual rights and screw you and I don't care if I give it to you. No, yeah. that wouldn't be right. But that case was never made. It was never made. We, we learned pretty, pretty early on. At first, we're like, oh, no, this guy got coronavirus the first couple of days. Is he going to die? And then all these people are living through it just fine. And some people with very in very compromised positions, very old people and, and compromised the, they were dying. Absolutely. Don't mean to make light of it. They were dying. But it, it turned out to be something 
that wasn't necessarily the public threat that they made it out to be initially. And I realized it's probably not going to kill me or anybody in my family. We're very blessed to be all be very healthy. I'm not too worried about it. So should I get yeah, the vaccine? Yeah. Am I helping others? It turns out you're not really helping anybody else. You're, you yeah. can still be contagious. You're only potentially reducing your own symptoms. And I thought, oh, okay. So mm -hmm. if I really were saving other people's lives by getting the vaccination and it really were the threat that they said it was, well, then I would consider that as my moral obligation. But that that case was never made. And so I just balanced and I said, I could put this vaccine in me. Is it going to have a bad effect on me? And my wife said, I think it might. So I said, okay, never mind. And that's traditionally why in, well, I was going to ask you, does this come up in your biblical ethics class? Like the vaccine or anything like that? I haven't taught that class yet. Um, we're oh, just okay. start. But I've had conversations about the vaccine with students. And I've said some similar things to what we're saying now. And and then some students feel very strongly that we need to be vaccinated. And um, and uh, we have that conversation. And, um, mm -hmm. and so on something like this, if they tell me something that I'm unaware of and they say, no, Dr. Merchant, you're wrong about this. And they say, actually, yes. Really good to hear. Really good to hear. Thank you for expressing that. And I just leave it at that and let it hang in the air. And then we continue talking and make our just sometimes we just leave it and we both sides say, we're actually we're not entirely sure. We need to go back and study this some more. And so I just let it be. Yeah, I mean it's a matter of authority, it's a matter of, of time. Um <clears throat> that's why traditionally people have had tremendous except with when presented with overwhelming evidence to the contrary, people have had, generally speaking, um, control over their private health, even when it affects other people. You see this with sexually transmitted diseases like AIDS. AIDS was a tremendously frightening thing in the 80s. Yeah. And yeah. there were a number of proponents of pretty harsh measures to deal with it, oftentimes coming from Republicans, unfortunately, like William Dannenmeyer in, in California. I'm not exactly sure is his his position on things, so I don't want to attribute things, but he was he was the congressman for this area, actually, where I live. Uh -huh. um, and then he retired and Ed Royce took over and Ed Royce just retired. But um, yeah, so it's tremendously interesting. What's interesting about this episode, Sanjay, is what makes this, this episode different, this kind of thing different than what we're doing, is it's very rare to get an expert, for example, on the Trinity, which you are, who teaches at a Bible college, uh, faithful, evangelical, uh, thoughtful, philosophically trained, astute, rigorous, and you have a, a, a nice, interesting, personal conversation with that person talking about your background, you know, talking about what it was like to go to school and, and stuff like that, not just the academics, but getting into the academics, getting into the weeds, and then just like some stuff politically and racially and gender stuff comes out of that. And it's all related. And you can, people can kind of see, like pick up things by osmosis and go, okay, well, there's a larger worldview here. And there's uh there's interesting options and connections they're not logical entailments but there might be connections that i'm missing so yeah so that's what <laughs> that's what i'm trying to capture here is not just the 
the you know the nail hole getting into there take the nail yeah. out and just go in there like a worm into the trinitarian theology and then you just stay there and then that's the end of the episode and you're just like okay i made it through that but now what i mean <laughs> right. i mean what what you know connect some dots here you know kind of thing so yeah so we did that a bit and we've been going a while so we'll let you go but we've been so grateful to have you here thank you so much Oh, th- thank you, Lucas. It's, it's really good to connect after, you know, like you said, it's, uh, it's been a while. And, uh, you know, you were a guy in my time at Talbot that was always really encouraging. You were, uh, I don't know if uh, people probably, if they only know you via this podcast, you're a funny guy, funny guy, disarming guy, uh, you know, always, <laughs> you always got a crowd around you, but, um, but always a really encouraging guy. You, um, you know, you, you were pursuing your own studies. You have, I'm sure you've told on your podcast, your own interesting academic background and, um, you know, studied a variety of things, philosophy and theology and politics. And you got all of that stuff together um, and know how to bring a variety of things together. And so you've got all of that stuff going on, but you were always encouraging me and others to do it in our own ways. Um, and I remember that. I remember that very fondly. I remember when I got my first job at Grand Canyon um, where you, you called me and you congratulated me and you told me that um, you said, uh, you know, you really deserve this. And I felt like, no, I don't. I'm very fortunate. I certainly don't. But it's really nice of you to say it was too much of too high of a compliment. But um, and, 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 I, and I know that, you know, you said, you know, that I've worked hard. I know the amount of work you put in developing courses and taught at probably every college in Southern California. <laughs> right and seen every kind of student and always had your hair on fire as well and just what a slog it is to get through a phd and all of that and uh mm. and, and uh, anyway just i've always appreciated uh, your friendship sanjay that warms my heart to hear you say that and i'm glad that that's your memory of me because frankly some of it's a blur looking back and and i wish i had clearer memories of biola um I, I, do, I, I guess I, it was before iPhones and I didn't, I don't have hardly any pictures. Yeah. So, you know, I taught at, for example, Pepperdine for over a, over a decade. I've got tons of pictures, you know, and I was always taking pictures, but of course I, after I got my iPhone Yeah. The, or the year, I guess I started there in 2007. So it was the yeah. year I got my iPhone and I started taking pictures. I didn't, you know, I, I had a camera with me and I just wish that I, and I hardly have any pictures of Denver seminary. Um, and I really wish that I had pictures with my professors and the classrooms and the kind of people that I was around. And it's, so I, I try to document a lot. I, I'm, I'm very sentimental. So I document it, it, it it's, it's kind of like, I like creating archives. I like creating something that somebody else, maybe decades from now, 50 years from now, will stumble across this episode and, and is trying to piece together for their time, what it was like in 2022. And we'll find this to be tremendously useful and maybe writing whatever version of a PhD is in a hundred years. And I do believe that these digital digital records are the new library. Mm-hmm. And I, that's how I think. I think of when I read like an old book from like 1890 or something, and I wish, gosh, I wish you would have like 
tell, tell me about what it's like to live there. Tell me about what it's like to get groceries. What, what's your day like, you know? And, um, I didn't, I usually ask people what they have, what time they get up and what they had for breakfast. What time do you get up every day? For school, I get up at uh, five and in off days, I'll probably get up around seven. I sleep in a little bit. And what do you typically have for breakfast? I usually skip breakfast. I don't like to eat in the morning. Um, so I'll, I'll eat a little bit later in the day. I've been doing that for a few years now. So I, I feel a lot more energy rather than ups and downs. Praise God. Yeah. All right, buddy. Well, we're going to let you go. I'm going to stop recording. Okay. See you, buddy.